get your family vehicles ready for summer driving with early Memorial Day deals at Dobbs. Click on GoToDobbs.com for money, saver retire, and service deals today. Dobbs. With 43 locations, real deals are always close by. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, I'm Dan for Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers, here to share the easiest way to buy tires. Come to Dobbs. With the best tire brands and the biggest inventory, you'll get your tires the same day at the lowest price, guaranteed. Next time you need tires, get into Dobbs. This is the BK and Ferrario Podcast, powered by I Promise. Now here's BK and Ferrario. Here's a shot fired to the goal. Grundstrom kicked at it. He's got it. Tucks it in and scores. A broken play in front, and just like that, it's 2-0 Los Angeles. And a real rocky start for the Blues tonight. Puck sent it in front. They shoot and score. And the Kings have made it 3-0 as Grundstrom was there to help deflect it in as the Blues again losing battles in front of their own net. L.A. now with some real playoff hopes. They hit the second half of the season and pull themselves to within three points of a playoff spot. And the Blues have played themselves into a tough second half. What happened last night, Alex? I thought that the Blues were going to come out. They were going to look refreshed. They looked anything but. They lose that one on the road this time. I expect that kind of a performance at home. Not on the road, Alex, out in L.A., 4-1 4-1 to one is the loss. Bennington just never really seemed to be right. He gave up that second goal. He wanted the Blues to challenge it. He thought there was interference. They didn't. It seemed like things really kind of avalanched from there. With Alex Ferrario, Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. It's BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. Alex, what happened last night, man? A lot of everything. And I think it all comes back to the Blues issues that we've talked a lot about. And and frankly, it is a lot more apparent to me now, BK, after watching that game last night, and that's three consecutive games. The Blues are insecure with the puck in their own zone. I'm amazed by this, too, because a perfect example, that power play goal, the first one of the game by the L.A. Kings. Tori Krug has the puck on his stick has the opportunity to skate the puck towards the hash marks and dump the puck out, get a clear change on a PK. He doesn't. He opts to drop the puck back to Justin Falk as he's getting pressured on the board. Falk takes the puck, he loses it, and then that results in the goal. I'm amazed at the insecurity that the Blues have with the puck in their own zone because this was supposed to be a top team at exiting their own zone. That's what you brought Tory Krug in for. He's a guy who can move the puck, He's fast. He's quick with his passes. The Blues aren't doing that. They are opting for the the extra pass in their own zone when all they have to do is just skate. And I think that's the frustration for Craig Berube right now is these guys aren't skating. They're trying to make these fancy plays, whereas it all comes down to just pushing the puck up the ice and playing a heavy, skilled game. And right now, it's lack of confidence 
it's unknowing of the system that they're trying to perform and it's lack of communication and it's now five games in a row and I know you can talk about three overtime losses and two regulation losses BK but that's five games in a row where it's been the same issues every single night yeah the defensive issues are a little surprising to me uh, the, the way that they've come about. If it's a situation where they're consistently getting pushed around in front of their net, and by the way, that was an issue last night. Uh, that's yep. one thing. When you're making lack, lackadaisical, I guess is the word that I'm going to use for it. I, I don't know that it's lazy, um, but lackadaisical passes in your own zone, and it leads to a turnover that directly results in a sc- score for the opposition. That's where it's like, how is this the thing that is happening? I can deal with the lack of physicality. They've got a lot of smaller dudes on their defense, uh, defensive core this year. But that's also got to come with the positives, right? You've got to have the strength of your game make up for that. Yeah, you're going to give up some goals where if you had a bigger guy, if you had your 6'4", 220-pound defenseman that we've come to know and love here in St. Louis, uh, your J, uh, J. Bowmeisters, and even to yeah. some degree Alex Petrangelo. Yeah, those guys, maybe you're not giving up some of the same goals. But it's got to lead to something else. It's got to lead to more odd man rushes. It's got to lead to better uh, passes out of the zone. Yeah. And it hasn't of late. And I think that's what's so frustrating about watching a game like that is this is supposed to be the strength. And suddenly it's become a weakness for this team. You know, as much as we talk about the defense and rightfully so, because last night was a rough game for Tori Krug and Justin Falk and Marco Scandella. I don't blame them fully. I blame the forwards as well, BK. I mean, look, this is a five-man unit, and the Blues right now are getting caught standing around. I mean, they got guys, and it's not the it's not the fourth line. Frankly, the fourth line was your best line last night of Dakota Joshua, Kyle Clifford, and Oscar Sundquist. It's some of these top players. In their own zone, when the Blues have the puck on their sticks, the reason they're not going north is because their forwards are standing around in the zone. They're waiting for a play to come to them rather than what we've seen in the past. And the question I got so many times last night on postgame BK was what is the difference between this team and last year's team? And it's the forwards that are not moving the bodies. They're not playing fast. They're not they're not moving and circling in the neutral zone like sharks to where that they can pounce on prey when the puck hits their stick. It's more of the defenseman gets the puck from the goaltender. They're looking up for a play to the forwards that are on the boards waiting for the pass. Next thing you know, you have three forwards coming at you from the opposition, which are causing turnovers. You need more movement right now. I think that's part of the reason defensively they're struggling, and it's a major reason why we're not seeing a lot of goals for the Blues. Based on Craig Berube's comments after the game last night, I think he agrees with you, Alex. The whole game, you know, we didn't generate enough offense. Um, You know, I bet you we had under 10 scoring chances in the hockey game, which isn't even close to being good enough. And this is the question that I wanted to ask of you because now you've got Tyler Bozak back. You are close to getting Jaden Schwartz back. I think he's going to play tomorrow night based on Craig Burby's comments. Robert Thomas doesn't seem like he's too far away. We saw the video during the game last night on Fox Sports Midwest of him getting some work in with Steve Ott against the boards. That's good to see. The offense just hasn't been good enough. You look at the first 17 games, and Jeremy Rutherford had this in his story over on The Athletic last night. They averaged more than two goals per game in the first 17 games of the season. They had 37 goals for in five on five play, two goals per game and five on five play in the first 17 games. In the last 12, they're at about 1.5 
goals per game at five on five. Thank God for the power play finally stepping up. And they showed the graphic last night. This is so far their best month of power play performance in the history of the blues. Thank (laughs) God for that. Because if not for it, man, that that five on five is unacceptable right now. Here's my question. Does that get fixed when Jaden Schwartz and Robert Thomas return? Because that's the big question moving forward for me. Uh, First of all, BK nailed it on the power play. (laughs) Even if it's the month, it nailed it on the power three play. Months, but we got here eventually. <laughs> nailed it on the power play. No, I don't think Schwartz and Thomas fixed the issues. And, and frankly, I'm getting to the point where I'm sick of hearing that. Now, I know that I've used the excuse, and rightfully so, that the injuries have affected this team. They have. But Vladimir Tarasenko coming back isn't fixing the problem. Tyler Bozak coming back isn't fixing the problem. Jaden Schwartz coming back isn't fixing the problem, nor is Thomas Barbashev or Pareko. Those guys don't become saviors for their team when they get healthy. They help, they come back, and they make your team stronger, but it's a full team effort. And, and right now, it really feels like guys are playing for themselves. And I hate saying that because I know that this is a close group of players in that locker room. They they care about each other. They fight for each other. But right now it's to the point where you're seeing individual players that are trying to do, that are trying to win the game themselves. So Pareko and Schwartz and Thomas coming back. Yes, that's great. But there's still a confidence issue right now. And you plug in one player on a line, it'll look better. But it's only going to be better unless all three forwards are playing the system that needs to be played. The same can be said about the defenseman. Can I be the guy that pumps rainbows and butterflies up your you-know-what real quick? Well, apparently I'm not going to be that guy, so you might need to, BK. Uh, Because I think the Blues, hear me out here. I think the Blues have some similar issues to the Baltimore Ravens. Now, if you remember early in the season, the Ravens' problem was they were getting down early and they couldn't come back. They just weren't built to be able to come back from down 14. They're not a passing team. That's not their system, right? And then injuries started to kind of um, throw the season out of whack. Their offensive line was banged up all year long and they just, they were never able to truly get back to form because of that. I think the Blues have some of that. The Blues system is in part built on getting up early, playing a heavy game, staying in the offensive zone, cycling things around, and they are just, they're like a python that takes the breath out of their opponent, and eventually there's just no time to be able to come back. They don't have that right now. They're not getting up on teams. They're getting down early, and then they're having to panic. They're trying to recover. Everybody, like you said, is trying to make the play that's going to break the game open. It felt at one point last night like Hoffman's goal might be that thing that is able to get them back into the game. Just wasn't enough because they don't have enough offensive zone time right now. And so as you get back, Jaden Schwartz and Robert Thomas, that is one thing that I do think could start going in the other direction. Maybe you do get a little more early goal scoring. And if you do, now your game starts to find itself. You're not pressing the way that you are right now. And I think a couple of weeks from now, and it might take some time, but a couple of weeks from now, we might be looking back and being like, whew, 
Thank God that was a blip on the radar because that was not right. fun to watch. I think we could still be heading there. I, I hope we can head there. And let me clarify a couple of things on the Air Comfort Service text line 65780. Someone said, Ferrario, but yesterday you gave this team an A+. No, I gave them a B, and I said they could get to an A+. Mm-hmm. Also, oh, how things have changed in a day. I remember listening to you yesterday saying the Blues are closer to being a cup champion than, make, than not making the playoffs. I believe they're closer to being a cup champion than not making the playoffs because – I think they can get to what they need to. But to your point, BK, let me play devil's advocate. Two weeks ago against the LA Kings, they were up three goals in the first period, and they lost that in overtime. The next night, or two nights later, they played the San Jose Sharks. They were up one nothing, and they were up 2-1, and they lost those games. That doesn't go I, with my narrative, though. <laughs> no, it doesn't, and I apologize. I'm not trying to shoot your narrative down because you are right. They play a heavy game. Their style is score early, and just destroy the opposition so that they're exhausted. That works, but you got to get to it. And right now, it seems like they don't have the confidence to play that way. And it also feels like in, this is going to sound like an excuse, it's not, they're also suffering from the Justin Falk effect this season, where you have a player who's an important piece, but he just feels out of place. And I think that can be very true for a guy like Tori Krug, who is still learning this system for a guy like Mike Hoffman, who is not performing to the level that the Blues need him to, although he did score last night. Nah, you you were right with your first statement. (laughs) Them getting on top early is crucial because they can't play catch-up hockey. That's right. I said it that way, and I'll leave it that way. But the only way that works, BK, when they score first is if they continue to put the pedal to the metal and not do what they did last night and have a bad period, followed by a good period, followed by another bad period. Yeah, they got to play 60 minutes, and it's like 100%. it's a cliche for a reason, but it's true. When was the last time that you remember watching the Blues and being like, wow, that was just a really good game from start to finish? They just played really well. For first period, second period, third period, it all just looked clean. I don't think we've had a 60-minute game this season. Opening night. Opening night is probably the one, right? Remember, that was when you said this team's going to be dominant. There's no way they're going to lose ever. Is that when I said the hollow notes? Yeah, it might have been. Damn it. It's completely dominant at five on five. I don't know how anybody stops them. Damn it. (laughs) I think I did say all of those things. We've got to pull that uh, that post-game show because Alex was feeling himself after that one. (laughs) He had the swaggering nipples walking out of the the post-game show. He was like, man, this is going to be a great season. Those those were nipple tassels, and I only wear those on the weekend late-night games, so that's not my fault, BK. I don't think that was a weekend game. I'm pretty sure that was on a Wednesday night. It was opening night. It's the same thing. Shut up, T-Bone. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendricks, and I'm Brandon Kiley. Plenty more on the Blues throughout the day today. We've got Joey Vitale joining us coming up at 1230. Coming up next, though, is Albert Pujols still an intriguing option for the Cardinals next season? He seems like he still wants to play. Do the Cardinals want him, though? Talk about it coming up next on 101 ESPN. I'm not here to talk about the past. This is the BK and Ferrario podcast. Now here's BK and Ferrario. Pools doesn't sound like a man that's ready to retire to me. He was on the fast lane yesterday and they asked him about it. We'll get to that here in just a second with Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. The big question for Cardinals fans this offseason, or at least one of them, Alex, has been, hey, do, do you bring back Albert, whether it be at the deadline this year, if there's a DH or next year, if he is available 
My answer to that at one point was I'd, I'd potentially be interested in doing something like that, especially if he has a good season. Now, the question was, is is Albert going to continue playing? After hearing this, I think he's going to. To me, I still have that fire. I, I still love the game. I mean, just because this is my last year of my contract, that doesn't mean that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be done. I mean, if I feel healthy, if I feel that I can continue to play, I'm going to play until... All 30 ball clubs shut the door on me and say, no, you're too old, you go home, you can't compete anymore. But I feel like, that my body, I feel really good. I put a lot of hours uh, into the gym uh, this off season, you know, training hard. Um, and I feel really, really good, uh, you know, this year coming into camp. He is right now 38 home runs away from reaching 700. That is a huge milestone, man. There's three guys that have ever done it in the history of Major League Baseball. It's Barry Bonds, Hank Aaron, Babe Ruth. If you can get to that point, you are in like the holy grail of baseball power hitters. He's already up there, but he he could be even more so. And so, Alex, I think he's going to play another year. The question, though, becomes after that, should the Cardinals be interested in him if there's a designated hitter? Where do you fall on that? A hundred percent, they should be interested, and I would love for somebody to to give me the reason as to why not. And I think BK might have the reason to why not. Uh, we'll get to that, but for me, everything about it makes sense because he is a power bat off of the bench. He's not coming here to be an everyday player. If the DH is here for the Cardinals, he makes you competitive. He's a a great person to have in a clubhouse to to help move along some of the younger players that might be taking over. And frankly, if it's a DH position, I don't think he's blocking anybody from opportunities rather than if he was an everyday player for you. So I think it would be a great move. Now it all comes down to salary and how much he's going to want because I don't think I'm paying this guy more than $5 million to be on my ball club. But the story with it would be awesome. I think it helps continue to move forward and people hate to hear it the cardinal way. And I also think he makes you competitive. He is still anything uh, worth a power bat. So I will go ahead and give you the other side of things, Alex. Please do. You wanted somebody to do it. I'm happy to play the other side. So the problem with Albert is he hasn't been good now in four years as a hitter. Uh, his his OPS plus, the number that I like to cite, is 13% below league average over the last four seasons. On the Cardinals, that would be one of their worst hitters. That guy, if he continues hitting like that, can't be your designated hitter when you're going into a potential championship window season. The other problem, and this is the bigger one to me, even more so than Albert's performance, is that you probably next year are going to have three spots for Tommy Edmond, Nolan Gorman, Tyler O'Neill, and Lane Thomas. You're going to have three spots for those four players. If Nolan Gorman hits well this year, especially down in AAA, which is where I expect he'll spend the majority of the season, if Tommy Edmond becomes the player that he's been so far in spring training and that the Cardinals believe he can be, and if you get positive seasons, good indicators from Tyler O'Neill and Lane Thomas, you don't need to go out there and spend money on a guy like Albert Pujols to be a designated hitter because you have better options internally that are going to be cheaper than Albert Pujols. The other thing is there's other options on the market, man. I know that for sentimentality reasons, and I'm in favor of some of those, he makes a lot of sense to come back here. But there's going to be better hitters available than Albert Pujols. And if you're trying to do some winning next year, those would be the guys that I would probably target above a guy like Albert. I get it, and you're not wrong. I just think 
it would benefit the ball club to have a guy like Albert Pujols on your team, a guy who knows how to win. It, it reminds me, and again, don't take this comp to heart because it's not the same player, but it reminds me a lot of what Carlos Beltran was when they brought him to the Houston Astros. Beltran was a much better player at the time for Houston, and I don't think Pujols could play to Beltran level, but you bring in a guy who has experience in winning, and I think that's an important feature to help this Cardinals team. You had that with Albert Pujols. Yes, you have that with Yadier Molina and Adam Wainwright, but a guy like Albert Pujols, I think, is very impactful for some of the younger guys, guys like Nolan Gorman, Dylan Carlson, heck, even a Paul DeYoung. Tommy Edmond. I'd even say it's influential on a guy like Nolan Arenado and Paul Goldschmidt. Now, I'm not saying this is like a charity case of bringing Albert Pujols just to bring Albert Pujols, because I think he could be effective for you off of the bench as a hitter, but I think taking that next step forward and transitioning some of those younger players into being everyday players would benefit you to have a guy like Albert Pujols. Think of it like an assistant hitting coach, but as a player who could come off of the bench. Just as like a a point of comparison real quick guys that I would be more interested in the Cardinal signing next year than Albert Pujols, JD Martinez, Nelson Cruz, Jorge Soler, Eddie Rosario. That's just a, <laughs> that's just a quick list of, of a few four guys that I would prefer if they need a designated hitter next year to be on the Cardinals. J.D. Martinez, as recently as two years ago, was one of the best hitters in all of baseball. Nelson Cruz is 41 years old. uh, Maybe. Is 41 years old, but he's been amazing even the last few seasons. He has a more recent track record of being a really good hitter. And by the way, to your point of having a guy in the room that knows how to win and is basically an extra hitting coach, Nelson Cruz fits that role to a T. Jorge Soler does not, but if you want power in your lineup, that's a guy that could hit you 40 bombs in a season. And Eddie Rosario was the bell of the ball this year. They just didn't have a DH, and so next year I think he makes even more sense for the Cardinals. All those guys cost more money than what Albert Pujols is going to cost you. Probably. And... J.D. Martinez is is the only exception here. You said Nelson Cruz is a winner, but Nelson Cruz hasn't won the championship, and Albert Pujols has, and I think that's an important aspect of this. But again, those guys are going to be expensive. Those guys are going to be ten plus million dollars. Now, Pujols will not be Martinez. Will he? He might be the guy that you could get on a one year ten million dollar deal or so. He would be an interesting one, and I would be all for over a J.D. Martinez over an Albert Pujols. Like that would be awesome. But I think Albert Pujols makes a lot of sense because it's cheap. It's a lot more effective. I think it goes a lot further in a clubhouse for the Cardinals than a guy like a J.D. Martinez. A J.D. Martinez, in some opinions, would come in and be like, oh, this is competition for me. Albert Pujols comes in as a legend, a legacy, a Hall of Famer, and I think that helps out a lot with some of those younger guys. Yeah, I agree with you. It's... I would not bring him back, but I understand the argument of yes, the you know he has the championship caliber, he he has this and that. But I, I agree with BK where you're going to have the internal, you're going to have those guys. Gorman fits the category perfectly, and when it comes to part of the argument, I could see with yours, Alex, of you know he's going to cost you less than a JD Martinez or possibly a Nelson Cruz. I think part of that's going to depend on what Tyler O'Neill does in left and what Paul DeYoung does this year at shortstop. Because, and I'm not saying they're going to go out and sign a Lindor or someone like that, but I, 
and in the rotation. I'll throw that there, too, because I do think it's going to matter because the money that's coming off the books is going to go to a position to help them in the field. I don't think they will spend big on a DH, so that's why I could see Pujols being brought back. If they're going to spend big, I could see them spending big on an outfield piece for left field or for a starting pitcher because they may need that come next year. Sure. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line. I also get this from the 636. Guys, none of those players that you just named are Albert. I just want him back. I totally get that. Uh, that's that's reasonable, and that's the sentimentality part of this. And if that's where you're at, there's no rational argument that I can make that is going to play to your emotional senses. And that's not me speaking down to it. I get that entirely. As a fan, if you just want to see Albert with one more ride, potentially get into 700 in a Cardinals uniform, that makes all the sense in the world. I get that. I really do. I understand it. I look at it more from the, I want the Cardinals to win a championship next year, regardless of who is in the uniform. And I think the better route to that title would be with somebody not named Albert Pujols on the team. But I do, I I legitimately, sincerely do understand the argument in favor of it. I I do. I think it'd be awesome to watch him potentially hit his 700th home run in a Cardinals uniform. I also find this one to be interesting from the text line as well, Alex, from the 314. Guys, is Albert Pujols at this point in his career a better hitter than Matt Carpenter? I went back and looked at the last two seasons for both of those players. Albert Pujols in that time has a 715 OPS. Matt Carpenter has a 705 OPS. So they're, I mean, essentially they're the exact same guy. So he's got more home runs, uh, more home runs over the last two seasons. Pujols, Pujols has 29. uh, Matt Carpenter has 19 in that stretch. I'd say Pujols is a little bit better of a hitter. If you could trade Matt Carpenter for Albert Pujols straight up, I would do it. Yes. hundred percent right now. If and the then Angels I, called you up and said, hey, we'll trade you Albert and you you give us Matt Carpenter. Yeah, I'll yeah. sign up. Pull the deal and I would then bring him back for another season very cheap to have him around. But yeah, I would do that in a heartbeat because I think Pujols is a better hitter than Matt Carpenter. He's more of a threat at the plate than Matt Carpenter, in my opinion. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. Coming up here in just about 15 minutes, we'll get into a uh, game of questions and answers. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line. Coming up next, though, we continue our countdown of the 20 most important Cardinals for the 2021 season. We are getting close to the end of this thing, Alex. We have number two. Man, I can't wait to see this guy in a Cardinals uniform. Eh, I think you know who it is. That's coming up next on 101 ESPN. This is the BK and Ferrario podcast. Now here's BK and Ferrario. And now the 20 most important Cardinals for the 2021 season. Yeah, there's a 40 man roster, but we only care about 20. It's BK and Ferrario. Number two, Nolan Arenado. Arenado, deep left, trouble, grand slam. Home run number 39. It's going to sound a little less depressing this year when Danny Mack is making a call for a Nolan Arenado Grand Slam. And I think we're going to see at least a few of those with Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kylie. We are getting to the end of our countdown of the 20 most important players for the Cardinals 2021 season at number two. It is the one and only Nolan Arenado. Alex Arenado is basically an annual 30-plus homer, 100-plus RBI guy. He has done it in his career five times. And when I say he's done it five times, he did it literally five of the last six seasons. The one exception was the shortened 60-game season when his 162-game pace would have been 28 home runs and 88 RBIs. And oh, by the way, he was hurt all of last Hmm. season. Not a bad player. Reason I bring that up? 
Cardinals haven't had a player do that in the last decade. The last time that a Cardinals hitter finished a year with at least 30 homers and 100 RBIs was Albert Pujols in 2010. In fact, they've only had four guys do it in the last two decades. Albert, Jim Edmonds, Ryan Ludwig, and Scott Rowland. Basically, MV3, and then that incredible Ryan Ludwig season back in 2008. Are you expecting 30 homers and 100 RBIs this year from Nolan Arenado? Yeah, I'm expecting a Scott Rowland-type season from Nolan Arenado. I mean, he made number two on this list for every reason that you would expect him to make this list because he's everything to this Cardinals team now. Paul Goldschmidt was the Nolan Arenado when they made that move a few years ago. Unfortunately for Paul, you can't do it yourself. It's very rare in Major League Baseball to have one superstar and to that team be successful. You have to have backup pieces for him. Now Paul Goldschmidt and Nolan Arenado can be a one-two punch. And I think Arenado makes Goldschmidt better. Goldschmidt makes Arenado better. But for Nolan Arenado, I'm expecting an MVP-type season from him because he's finally somewhere where he doesn't have to focus on everything else. He doesn't have to worry about what the general manager is saying about his contract. He doesn't have to worry about the Colorado Rockies talking about not having enough money for he and Trevor Story. All he's got to worry about is just going out and playing baseball. He wants to win a championship. That's why he wanted to come to St. Louis. That's why I think he is going to have a monster season this year for the Cardinals. And I think it's going to be a very effective piece for this team in making a postseason push this season. So Nolan Arenado, rightfully so, number two on my list as well, because without him, this Cardinals will not have a winning season. I'm with you. I I think Arenado MVP is the right expectation to have. MVP caliber season. He's going to have Goldie on base in front of him. And I know we're probably... It looks like Goldie's going to hit second in front of him. Tommy Edmonds looking great so far in spring as the leadoff guy. So more than likely, he's going to have two guys on base in front of him. I think 30 home runs and 100 RBIs should be the expectation. And anything below that would kind of be a disappointing season from Nolan Arenado. I'm with you guys. And you need multiple guys in your lineup to your point, Alex. I mean, you look back at some of the World Series winners in recent years, the Dodgers last year. I mean, we don't even have to go through that lineup. But you had Seager, Betts, and Bellinger right at the top that immediately, yeah, you've got to worry about those dudes every single night. You go back to the 2019 Washington Nationals. While we talk about the rotation, and that was obviously the main reason why they went to that World Series. They also had Anthony Rondon, Rondon, who had an unbelievable season that year. And oh, by the way, Trey Turner and Juan Soto aren't too bad either. You go back to 2018 with the Boston Red Sox. You had Mookie Betts on that team. You had J.D. Martinez on that team, both of whom had unbelievable seasons. The Astros, we all know that they had great hitters in that lineup, specifically... And trash cans. That too. Jose Altuve and Carlos Correa, who stepped up for them. The Cubs, back in 2016. I know I threw up in my mouth a little bit as well. But you look back at that team, you've got Anthony Rizzo and Chris Bryant that immediately come to mind. You need multiple guys, is what I'm saying. And for the last five years, basically, the Cardinals have had one guy every year in their lineup. Now they've got multiple. You look at that 2-3 in the lineup right now, and they stack up against just about anybody in baseball. The big question for me is, what does it look like for Nolan Arenado with Paul DeYoung behind him? Mm -hmm. Is DeYoung enough protection for him as your cleanup hitter? I hope that the answer to that question is yes, but that's the only thing that concerns me is, If you're another team, am I pitching to Nolan Arenado or am I letting Paul DeYoung beat me behind him? 
Well, and if you look at the way we ranked our, our important players, two, three, and four for us, it was Arenado, Paul DeYoung, and Paul Goldschmidt. I mean, these three guys are very, very pivotal for this Cardinals upcoming season. Here's the other thing why Arenado made this list for me at number two, BK, and he's the top position player for me, with which I guess would be a little bit of a giveaway as to uh, what number one is for us. But Arenado gives everyone an opportunity to take a breath. Arenado coming to the Cardinals takes the pressure off Paul DeYoung of being a cleanup hitter. Now, I know he's hitting in the cleanup spot, but he doesn't have the pressure of being the cleanup hitter, meaning he has to score all of the RBIs. Paul DeYoung could be himself. Tyler O'Neill can stop trying to be Albert Pujols .20. He can just be Tyler O'Neill. It goes. It's a trickle-down effect. Harrison Bader can be himself. Yadier Molina is always himself. Tommy Edmond. Anybody you talk about in this Cardinals lineup is going to have an effect from Nolan Arenado because he is a presence in that locker room and on the field. And I think that is critical for this season. See, I think this puts more pressure on Paul DeYoung because I think with Arnado in front of him, and if he if if Arnado is what we think he's going to be, which is MVP caliber, and DeYoung can't live up to hitting cleanup behind him, yeah, I'm not going to pitch to Arnado. I'm going to give him the same treatment Goldie got this past season, where you don't yep. have protection behind you. That's why I think there's more pressure on DeYoung, because I understand the idea of, well, you know, Arnado should bring less out off him. No, I think he's going to bring more, because I think he's going to have more guys on in front of him and in bigger spots. But the goal for, at least for me, from a fan's perspective, is it, I want Paul DeYoung to come up with only Nolan Arenado on base. Like, Nolan Arenado is my base-clearing hitter. So, yes, you have runners in scoring position with Paul DeYoung still, but it's no more Paul DeYoung as the guy with Tommy Edmond and Paul Goldschmidt on base and one out. Now it's Nolan Arenado has scored a run or two, and Paul DeYoung comes up with less of those RBI pressure moments, at least in my opinion. See, I think right now, if Goldie's on second, I've got Arnado up one out, I'm pitching around Arnado, And I'm going to say, DeYoung, you beat me, O'Neal, you beat me. That's what I'm doing right now. If I'm the Pirates, I'm the Cubs, any team. I am well, saying you're the Pirates. You're just losing. That's fair. If I'm the Pirates, I'm probably throwing him a fastball right down the middle. Yes. But I, if I'm any team, I am not letting Arnado beat me with Goldie on second. It is going to have to be DeYoung, and it is going to have to be Tyler O'Neill. I agree with you. That being said, I mean that that's that's a good spot for Paul DeYoung right now. Now DeYoung's going to get pitches to hit. And if he strikes out, it's on his own volition. It's time to step up, big boy. If you don't get the job done, Tyler O'Neill's right behind you, ready to try to get it done. If he can't get it done, Dylan Carlson's right behind him. I know it's difficult. It's frustrating to go into the season once again with questions about the cleanup spot. But at least they know one, two, three, we're in a good place with what the top of our order looks like. And a big part of that is because Nolan Arenado's finally in St. Louis. By the way, Nolan Arenado. Alex kind of mentioned this or hinted at it a little bit earlier. The reason why he was always the guy that we talked about as a potential target for the Cardinals is because he personifies everything about the Cardinal way that Cardinals fans want to see. He plays unbelievable defense. He does not strike out. If you look at his strikeout rate in recent years, man, it's like 10 to 15%. Yeah. His strikeout rate is right in line with his walk rate. 
That's crazy. That, that doesn't happen anywhere in baseball nowadays. So he's walking a ton. He never strikes out. He puts the bat on the ball. He hits to all fields. He hits 30 homers a year. He's getting those typical RBI stats that you love to see with 100 ribbies every single season. He's everything you could possibly want for in a hitter and then some because he also has the intangible of being one of the fiercest competitors in the sport. And so he is the perfect Cardinal in every possible way. That's why this always made so much sense for the Cardinals. The number two most important Cardinal for the 2021 season, Nolan Arenado. Congratulations, Mr. 95%. 95% baby! 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line. Questions and answers coming up next. This is the BK and Ferrario podcast. Now here's BK and Ferrario. the air comfort service text line for questions and answers from the 618 guys do you feel like it's hard to gauge the blues this season with all of the injuries feels like with not getting to see thomas and hoffman or without having thomas out there hoffman has struggled to find some chemistry with his line mates as well oh yeah hall's gonna struggle without adam oates on the ice right no, that, that doesn't work. I know. I've BKO'd the Blues, especially with Robert Thomas and Mike Hoffman. Yeah, look, it's hard to evaluate this team as a whole without all of your pieces. But this team has shown the same issues when those guys were in the lineup. I mean, go back to the beginning of the season when Colton Pareko was in the lineup and Robert Thomas was in the lineup. And uh, everyone was there, basically, except for Vladimir Tarasenko. The Blues would win a couple of games. They'd lose a couple of games. They'd go out there and run the table against the Avalanche and beat them 4-1. to one. Then they would lose the next night, giving up eight goals. So it's hard to evaluate this team without all of your pieces. But I think you have a good idea as to what the issues are with this team without those pieces, if that makes any sense. I'm with you. I, I don't know where you stand, but right now I'm very fearful of a first-round exit from the Blues. I, I just don't think they can compete with right. Vegas, which we've seen. I'm I, fearful of them making the playoffs right now. Whoa. It's getting to that point for me, too. I'm serious. I mean, if you look at the, the points percentages, it's not crazy to be concerned, especially with the, with the schedule that is coming up. I still think they're going to be fine because with everybody getting healthy, I think they'll be all right. But I, I totally think that fear is justified. I, I think that's justified, but I didn't want to say that because yesterday I'm yeah. more likely and happy. I said more likely well, they'll win a cup look, than miss. I'm with you. Look, right now you got four games the rest of the season against the Anaheim Ducks, and that's the only team that you have beaten every time. Other than that, you were 500 or less against all of the teams that you were playing, and that's not even taken into consideration the wild that you play eight times that you have not seen this season. So unless you are going to win every other game against these teams – you could be on the outside because the Kings are now within three points and they got a game in hand. I was about to say, they're basically one game back. The, the Kings and right you now have one more to play percentage, them. It, it, they basically, if they beat you the next time around, they're ahead of you. That, yep. That's where you're at right 100%. now with the Blues. I, I think that the biggest reason why I'm struggling to have a good grip on this team is because of the injuries. I'm giving them two weeks, Alex. They've got a two-week hiatus for me before I really start to dive into what is this team and what does that mean for them moving forward? Because I want to see Robert Thomas back on the ice. I want to see Jaden Schwartz on the ice. And I want to see them get some sort of a chemistry with their line mates. We saw it last yeah. time, whenever Robert Thomas was in with Hoffman, the chemistry was not there. Uh, they, for whatever reason, it just wasn't working. What does that look like this time around? Do they try it again? Do they go with maybe instead Kairu on Robert Thomas's line? I would like to see what that looks like. So there's some things that I want to see them work through. 
I'm giving them two weeks and then it, it's go time. And if at that point they're not winning, they don't look the part. That's when I'm legitimately going to be concerned. I'll give them three weeks because that fourth week is the trade deadline. And I think by that third week, you've played every team that you'll see this season. And you've started that track against Vegas and Minnesota in April. So I'll give them three weeks. But by that second week of April, if this team is still playing 500 or less, yeah, I think I'm going to start having to pull the trigger and, and move pieces to try and get some different uh, chemistry in that locker room. 65780 is the air comfort service text line for questions and answers. Uh, last quickie here. From the 314, guys, why don't you think that the Cardinals are considering Dylan Carlson batting second? He seems to me to be the perfect mold. He's got speed, he's got pop, and above all else, he has incredible plate discipline. You could then have Golden uh, Goldschmidt at three, Arenado at four. It would help lengthen your lineup. Am I the only one seeing this? Why aren't the Cardinals trying it? No, I mean, we all gave our projected lineups a few weeks ago, and Dylan Carlson was the consensus number two hitter for this team. The only reason that I could see Mike Schilt putting Carlson deeper into the lineup is because you can break up the the heavy righty that you have in your batting order. Because right now, you only have two guys that are starters that can hit left, and that's your two switch hitters in Tommy Edmond and Dylan Carlson. So if you put those two guys one-two, then you basically are just righties the rest of the way through. So that for me would be my only explanation is they're just trying to break up the continuity of right-handed hitters. Yeah. I mean, that makes the most sense to me of why they're not doing it. And in the fact of Carlson has struggled so far in spring training, I, I, if I remember correctly, he's hitting right at two or he's hitting below two so far. So I, I still would rather see him at second though. I don't care if I have a bunch of righties there. I like Goldie and Arnado three, four. It's just my preference. I'd rather have the chance of two guys being on base for Goldie rather than one with Tommy Edmond. That's why I would hit Carlson second. But I understand the argument for the Cardinals of bumping him down in the lineup. Yeah, the concern for Carlson so far in the spring is the strikeouts. He has nine strikeouts, three walks so far this spring. And that's typically about timing, and it's about pitch recognition early in the spring. I look at that more than I do batting average or something like that just because I mean, you guys know how it works down at Roger Dean. Some of those hits that fall wouldn't have been hits in a big league ballpark. And some of the uh, hits that look like they're going to be homers are suddenly sucked back into the outfield. So I don't look too much at the average. The strikeouts are the thing that I do look at. That's been a little concerning this spring for Carlson. But I think in a best case scenario, the Cardinals will go into the postseason this year with Edmund batting leadoff, Carlson batting second, Arenado and Goldie 3-4 in one way or another. And then I think in a best-case scenario, you'll have Paul DeYoung and Tyler O'Neill 5-6 in some order. That's the best-case scenario if everybody reaches what their peak performance is this year. Will that happen? I don't know. But that's what I think they're hoping will happen this year. Yeah. Without I, say, I, I would flip. Sorry, BK. I would flip that. I actually think peak would be Tyler O'Neill as your cleanup hitter and Dylan Carlson as your five-hole hitter. Okay. I, I could see that as well because that means that Tyler O'Neill has just smashed the baseball all season. Exactly. MVP. And people would be into that, I think. With Alex <laughs> Ferrario, Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. So I did want to bring something up. So earlier today, we had the distinct pleasure to talk with a guy that I think should be in the Hall of Fame that I think absolutely should be in the Cardinals Hall of Fame in Keith Hernandez, one of the best hitters, one of, if not the best, defensive first baseman in the history of the sport. 
I asked a poorly framed question. And I apologize to Keith Hernandez for that. We have done that off air. I wanted to say to the listeners, though, because you deserve this from me to be open and honest. I do think it is a fair question to ask. I framed it very poorly, and I apologize for that. I asked about how things ended for him here in St. Louis. I think that any time that I talk with a Cardinals fan who has been here for longer than me, and I try to do this as often as possible so I can gain more institutional knowledge, the single biggest question or uh, frustration that they had about the Keith Hernandez era was how it ended, right? And, and that's that's in part why, thus far, from people that I've talked with, why he hasn't gotten into the Cardinals Hall of Fame. And so I wanted to get his perspective on that, of how it finished here in St. Louis. I asked it poorly, and it ended up getting a, an answer that I, I was not anticipating. And so I apologize for you for putting Keith Hernandez into that position. I should have been better in terms of the way that I framed the question. But to explain why I asked that question, that's where I was coming from. I just wanted to get his response to something that I know is going to be discussed quite a bit as his Hall of Fame candidacy here in St. Louis is under consideration. So that was why I asked the question. I framed it poorly. I apologize for that. That's on me. I got to be better there. But that's that's why I asked the question. And uh, I will work on framing the questions better in the future. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. Coming up next, is Lane Thomas working his way into the Cardinals' planes in the outfield? And the whole, if you hit, you play mantra. Who all does that apply to? We'll talk about it coming up on 101 ESPN. This is the BK and Ferrario podcast. Now here's BK and Ferrario. If it's opening day, now we got a ways to go, but my outfield is O'Neill, Lane Thomas, and Dylan Carlson. Right now, Lane Thomas is one of the best players that they're running out there every day. Oh, boy. That was your boy, Mike Claiborne, yesterday on with me and Danny Mack with Alex Ferrario, Tanner Hendrickson. I'm Brandon Kiley. Lane Thomas has been good so far this spring. Six for 21 overall. He's got a couple of doubles. He's got four ribbies. Like I said, with Dylan Carlson, you do have to watch the strikeout to walk ratio. He's at 10 to one right now in the wrong direction. Ten strikeouts, just one walk. But he's making a case for himself. He's making a case that he should be included in this Cardinals outfield mix early in the season. I know we talked last week about the possibility of maybe platooning Harrison Bader and Lane Thomas in center field. Alex, do you think there's any way that Lane Thomas can significantly work his way into the Cardinals opening day plans? Boy, you are uh, you are asking the wrong person for the wrong answer with this, BK, because I think you're wanting me to uh, talk a little bit more about Bader, but I got to go with my guy Carlson here. I mean, 10 strikeouts are alarming, and I agree with you. You got to pay close attention to that. Harrison Bader only has four strikeouts. He doesn't have – oh, he has one walk compared to four strikeouts. But the problem is Lane Thomas has got power, and we're seeing that in spring training. It's, what, two doubles? Not a home run yet for Lane Thomas, but still, this guy has pop. Now, it comes down to defense, and this is where I know Tanner kind of – went with it a couple of days ago where Bader's the better defender. I agree, but I think Lane Thomas can play that position just as well. Not as good, but just as well. So if he continues this track record of showcasing power, striking out a little bit, I think he's a better nine-hole hitter for you than Lane Thomas. So I would lean more into the into the side of Lane Thomas being the everyday center fielder until Harrison Bader can start to hit. I, I don't see any way that 
Thomas is your starting in the starting outfield, especially the way the only guy he was competing early with in the season, early in the season. Yes. The only person I see him competing with was Tyler O'Neill. I, and right now O'Neill's won the left field job. And I think he had, I think he secured that to me. Carlson is starting in right field. And I think it all comes down to the fact of the matter that there is no minor league starting on time. If minor league season was starting on time, I could easily see Carlson starting the year in AAA this year, especially we, the way he struggled. Can we have a serious conversation about Dylan Carlson right now? Because Brad Thompson said something on the fast lane the other day, and I want to ask you guys if it also applies to Dylan Carlson. If Lane Thomas gets an opportunity in the next two weeks and he's getting almost everyday ABs and he is driving the baseball, Lane Thomas should be your starting center fielder. Like it's who ends up giving you the best chance for success day play, in and day right? out. That's Absolutely. what we That's heard. The, right? the old adage if you hit, you play. Does that apply to Dylan Carlson? Is it exclusively, are we only, when we talk about that, are we only talking about second base, center field, and left field? Or can you also include right field into that conversation? Yeah, you should definitely include right field into this conversation. You have four outfielders for a reason. Five if you want to include Justin Williams, but he hasn't really been hitting. And if you want to include the Nog father, you can. There's, there's four outfielders for a reason, BK. And, and if three guys are hitting the ball well, then those three should be playing. And the, that's Lane Thomas for me. And that's Dylan Carlson and Tyler O'Neill for me. If Tyler O'Neill was struggling like Harrison Bader was right now, we'd be talking about Lane Thomas in left field. Dylan Carlson is struggling, but the problem is so is Harrison Bader. And Dylan Carlson for me has the upper hand in terms of the outfield over Harrison Bader. That's why I'm going with Lane Thomas. So I think if you hit, you play applies to everyone unless you're playing first, short, third, or catcher. I think this is going to be a fascinating topic because I think there's a few of these. They, they don't exist very often, but they, they have existed here in St. Louis more than other places. If, if you get into the season and Dylan Carlson is not performing up to expectations, I do wonder if there is going to be a disconnect between what John Mosellock would like to see in the lineup every day and what Mike Schilt would like to see in the lineup every day. They opened up this opportunity for Dylan Carlson. They traded Dexter Fowler and immediately made it known it's going to be Dylan Carlson in right field every day. They didn't open up that spot for the outfielders. They opened up that spot for Carlson. He was the one that they singled out. The other three guys are fighting for the other two spots. At least that's how things have been framed thus far. I don't think Dylan Carlson, it applies to him. If he goes through his struggles, they stick with him. But, but, I do think there's going to be a tipping point. And I think that tipping point will be with Mike Schilt even more so than it is with John Mosellock. And Mike Schilt is the one that is making the lineup every day. So if you get six weeks into the year and he's been putting him out there every day and Dylan Carlson's batting 200, he's striking out more often than you'd like to see. It just, it looks kind of like the first time around when he came up. I will be very curious to see if this mantra of you hit, you play, if that starts applying to Dylan Carlson as well. I don't think it this does. Is... I, don't think ahead, it, I don't think it affects Dylan Carlson because Carlson is supposed to be your future corner outfielder that is going to be your two-hole hitter going forward. And with Carlson, putting him on the bench helps him, doesn't help him at all because he's going to learn from his mistakes at the major league level. And if he's not hitting... The problem, the problem that's going to occur for the Cardinals is 
I don't think the idea of do we bench Carlson is going to be do we send him to the alternate camp because he's going to have he still has all of at his that options. That point though would be AAA because AAA season is going to be about a month right. behind the the we start think. of the major league we season. Think. Yeah, well, that's a fair point. And here's the thing, T Bone. What you said it could apply to Harrison Bader, to Tyler O'Neill, and to Lane Thomas, but I don't think it applies to a 22-year-old that you want to be a mainstay in your lineup. Yes, he is going to learn more when he's in the game rather than sitting on the bench, but you can also learn a lot from sitting on the bench and watching the game. And I do believe that he's not going to be a healthy scratch consistently like we've seen in the past of Colton Wong and guys who aren't performing, they get sat. I believe he will be sent to that, tr- that that camp like he was before if he hits a long-term struggle. Here's the interesting scenario that this team is in, though. To what, your point, BK, with Shilton Mosellock, what happened the last time that there was a problem where playing time was an issue? They traded away guys. They I was about to say, pl- this was almost a decade ago now, and you looked at that was the John Jay situation, yep. right? Alan it, Craig. Was, and Yep. You got rid of them, and... You you used the excuse, if it was an excuse, maybe it was actually what they wanted, you wanted to get more of a grizzled vet in that locker room that was John Lackey. The interesting scenario, I don't know if the Cardinals can do that right now because they're so concerned and nervous about trading away some of their players that with the Randy Arena effect that I don't think they could get to that. So I think Mike Schilt has the upper hand here. I, I, could, I could agree with that. But w- with Carlson, to me... I. I get your point of, you know, you can learn from sitting. I don't think that it does apply somewhat to hitting, but hitting is about timing. And the only way you're going to maintain your timing is if you're playing every day. Now, if the minor league season does start in a month, which is what it's a month delayed, that's what the goal is right now. But we've heard some executives say it could last longer. If Carlson is hitting 200, then it would make sense to put him in AAA, get him the everyday at-bats and work on it. But sending him to the alternate site? I mean, we've heard Libertor talk about all of the alternate site help me. I don't know if it's going to help Carlson. I, it's I really different don't. for Carlson than it is for a guy that's that's yeah. been been in a single A or double A, right? Like Carlson needs to get the work against major league pitching. And as much as we can talk about how excited we are about guys like Libertor and Thompson, th- they're not here for a reason because they're not quite at the same level as the guys that are in the majors right now. Yeah, so I, that's why I think with Carlson, you just have to ride it out. I think you write it out, and I think that if you hit, you play model will play towards a Harrison Bader. If Harrison Bader is not hitting and Thomas is, then fine. You can put Thomas in, start him in center field, and then if you need to make a defensive substitution, you can late in a ball game. But for Carlson, I do not think that it applies to him. I think the Cardinals have seemingly learned lessons from the way that they have handled their outfielders in the past. You look back to Randall Gritchick. His biggest issue when he was here in St. Louis, according to him, the, for, through his eyes, was they didn't play me enough. I didn't get the consistent at-bats. It was frustrating for me to see my name in the lineup one day, go 0 for 3, and then not be in the lineup the next day. And he, he basically said he started pressing because he knew I got a hit to be able to stay in the lineup the next day because if I don't, they're going to pull me out like that. Same thing was the case for Colton Wong at one point. You look back at his experience with Mike Matheny. It was like, okay, gold glove defender at second, but they need production now. And it would be one day he looks great, two days he's he's off a little bit in terms of his timing, and then he's out of the lineup for two days. That can't happen with with Dylan Carlson. This This year has to be, if they are being honest, this year has to be about making sure that you get the development that you need from Dylan Carlson. So that if you hit, you play mantra, it applies to guys like Matt Carpenter. I think Tommy Edmond to agree, Tyler O'Neill, Harrison Bader. I'm good with all of those. It does not apply to Yadier Molina, Paul Goldschmidt, Paul DeYoung, 
Nolan Arenado, and in my opinion, the fifth guy that you can put on that list is Dylan Carlson. I don't think it should apply to him. There's a point at which there's just there's no way you can keep him in, and that's if you're in like July and he's batting 180 or something. Okay, let's get real about it then. But as long as it's something reasonable, 230, 240, I do not think that mantra will apply to Dylan Carlson this season. With Alex Ferrario, Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. Coming up next, let's get into our NCAA tournament quick hitters. We're going around the South region. Which game are you most intrigued by? And who's the most likely first round upset? Our NCAA tournament quick hitters of the South region is next on 101 ESPN. This is the BK and Ferrario podcast. Now here's BK and Ferrario. All right, boys, it is time for our NCAA tournament quick hitters. We're doing this each day leading up into tournament time. Alex, let's get into this time around the South region. We've already done the West. We did the Midwest. We've talked about Illinois and Mizzou's regions. Now let's move to the South where Baylor is the number one seed. The number two seed is Ohio State. Which game are you most intrigued to see in the first round of the South region? Boy, I think it's Ohio State for me Um, because I really think Oral Roberts can beat Ohio State. But here's the other problem. I freaking have Ohio State going to the Elite Eight. (laughs) That could be a problem. <laughs> it's a Earlier real problem. In my FanDuel read, I said how one team, you, you just know it. You know it going into the open we- opening weekend. Man, this could go poorly for me, and that breaks my bracket. They might yeah. be that team. Yeah, they are, because I, I, I could not justify sitting here and saying Virginia Tech can take down Ohio State, nor could I justify Arkansas taking down Ohio State. So they are the ones I'm most confused by, but I'm also most con- in, intrigued to watch because, frankly, it's going to just ruin my bracket if they lose that game against Oral Roberts. Mine's Texas Tech-Utah State. I think Utah State has a chance to take them down. I think it's going to be a really close game. I still have Texas Tech winning that one, but that's the one I find most intriguing here in the South. And I'll be honest, guys, here in the South, I don't have a whole lot of upsets from this region. No, I don't either. That's a really good point. In fact, the only upset that I have, we'll get to this more in here in just a minute, is Virginia Tech over Florida. Other than that, every single other higher seed is who I have advancing. The number one game that I am interested in watching, it's going back to the 8-9 matchup. North Carolina versus Wisconsin. The Big Ten was a hellacious schedule this year. And so if you look at the overall record for Wisconsin on the season, you're probably not going to be that impressed. 17-12 and on the year. But here are their most recent losses. Iowa, Iowa, Purdue, Illinois, Iowa, Michigan, Illinois, Penn State, and Ohio State, and then Michigan again. That's their last 10 losses. Nine of those are to legit top 10 to 15 teams in the country. Is Wisconsin a bad team, or did they just run up against an unbelievably difficult schedule? I think it's the latter. I'm going to pick them to win that first round matchup against North Carolina. That's the game, though, that I'm most intrigued by in the first round. What is your most likely first round upset, Alex? I know we all said not a whole lot to be had here. If you're looking for one, though, where are you pointing? I don't like it, but I have Utah State over Texas Tech. And I know T-Bone just referenced it, but I don't like it because Texas Tech is always a team that plays these games really tough. And they're always nail biters. And I think they'll win that one, but I, I just couldn't justify not picking Utah State because a 6-11, it just feels like one of those upsets Great waiting to happen. Great defense by Utah State, too. They'll keep this low scoring, and that, that, that'll give them a chance. 
Yeah, so that's the one I'm so uh, I'm I'm torn with. But Utah State. Now, frankly, I don't have them getting past Arkansas, but I took Utah State as my uh, upset in this first round. That would be the one for me. I, I think it would be Utah State. I said it's the most intriguing game for me. It's also the only one that I would have. I don't have it as an upset. Again, I don't have a upset in the South. So if there was one that could occur, I would say that one. Or also, I'm not that sold on Purdue. I, I could see North Texas maybe sliding by, but I have Purdue winning. So right now, those would be my two if I had to take an upset. So I mentioned this a minute ago. I've got Virginia Tech beating Florida. I am not all that impressed with Florida this season. In fact, I think they are way overseeded. It's upset. But if you're looking for like a five, six seed that could go on a little bit of a run, do you see anybody that could fit into that category? I don't have a five, six Six team, but I have four. Purdue. I I could see Purdue beating Baylor. Now, Baylor's a powerhouse, and I know a lot of people are picking Baylor to be in the Final Four, if not the championship game. But I could see Purdue making some noise against Baylor. I mean, they're a high-scoring team. They play really tough at the underneath the basket. Um, I don't believe it will happen, but I do have Purdue going to the Sweet 16 against Baylor. Same. And I, I think Purdue, Purdue could make some noise against Baylor. So they would be the team that I could say comes out of this region. Mine's the five-seed Villanova. I really Jay Wright's a great coach. I like the Villanova team. I think they could surprise us and make a run. They're underseeded. That's that's the thing. They they got a really rough draw. I like Purdue as well. I like Purdue and Villanova. And if they were yeah. on the bottom half of the bracket, if they were going up against Ohio State instead of Baylor in a Sweet 16, Elite Eight type of a matchup, I think I would pick either of them to go on a little bit of a run. They're not a sleeper candidate because I think you guys took the only ones that I would look at. Mm-hmm. Arkansas is the team that I would watch here in this in this region. Uh, they're a three seed, so it's not like I'm picking a 16 or anything. <laughs> but if you're looking for somebody that might be a surprise that can make it to the final four out of the South, for me, it would be Arkansas. Um, and they're the team, by the way, that I actually have going to the Elite Eight against Baylor. That's the team, though, that I can't get away from. I've got Baylor winning this region. Do you guys have anybody different? Do you have any reason to believe that it's not going to be Baylor that represents the South in the Final Four? Nope. I got Baylor taking on Ohio State in that that, uh, Elite Eight, and I got Baylor in the Final Four. I've got Ohio State taking down Baylor. I I really like that Ohio State team, and... I watched them. They lost to Illinois, and they competed well with Illinois. They got that game to overtime. That, to me, showed me that Ohio State is built for a run, and they didn't they didn't scuffle like Michigan did coming down the stretch of the, the heck they beat Michigan in the semifinals of the Big Ten Championship. I think Ohio State can take down Baylor. I've got them coming out of the South. Really? Okay. I like wow. that one. Um, who is the team, last thing, on the South region before we get to Joey Vitale, our Blues analyst here in just a couple of minutes? Who is the team you're most confused by? They could go on a run to the final four or they could get beat in the first or second round of the tournament and you wouldn't be surprised either way. Who's the team it's, with the widest range of outcomes for you? It's the team that I have as my most intriguing team to watch in the first round and it's Ohio State because I really don't know if they're going to beat Oral Roberts or if they are going to run all the way to the Elite Eight against Baylor and as T-Bone said, could beat Baylor. So they are the one team that confuses the hell out of me and they're the one team that's going to ruin my bracket this season. Mine would be Arkansas. I could easily see Arkansas making a pretty good run at getting to the Final Four, but I could also see them losing like in the second round to a Utah State, who I have coming out of there. So 
Right now, I think Arkansas would be my team that could go either way. Arkansas is really good, man. Moses Moody is a stud. I was looking at an NBA draft uh, breakdown for the NCAA tournament to get things uh, prepared. They had him listed as like the fifth best player going into this year's draft. He's he's really, really good. Um, I like named Moses is good at basketball. Moses Moody, you knew when he was born, you were like, that kid's going to be a star basketball player. (laughs) I know nothing about him, but I know he's going to be a stud, whether it be basketball, baseball, football, something. He's going to be amazing. Uh, My team for this, I'm going to go with Purdue. You mentioned them earlier, Alex. If there's anybody coming from that top half as you're looking at your bracket of the South region that can beat Baylor, I think it would be Purdue. So they're the team that I wouldn't be stunned if they lose in the second round to Villanova, or they could easily go on a run to the final four. Purdue for me, given what the Big Ten is, and that's what's throwing me off the scent of all these teams. Wisconsin, Purdue, I think some people are thrown off of Michigan by this as well. The Big Ten being as good as it is, kind of has us undervalued on some of these teams that have come out of the Big Big Ten. So Purdue would be my team that I'm the most confused by. That is our South region breakdown here on BK and Ferrario on 101 ESPN. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendricks and I'm Brandon Kylie. Next, Joey Vitale, our Blues analyst for 101 ESPN, is going to join the show. What went wrong for the Blues last night in his mind? And does it get fixed with the return of Jaden Schwartz and Robert Thomas very soon. We'll ask Joey Vitale when he joins us next. This is the BK and Ferrario podcast. Now here's BK and Ferrario. We're talking blues hockey. It's the Joey Vitale report on 101 ESPN. Brought to you by the Electrical Connection. When you need quality electrical work for your home or business, visit electricalconnection.org. Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. Let's go out to the Brown and Crouppen Celebrity Line for our favorite time of the week. It is our opportunity to talk with Blues analyst for 101 ESPN. He is Joey Vitale joining Joey, us here on the Joey, show. Joey, 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 Joe, what's going on, man? How you doing today, dude? Favorite time of the week. That's 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 pretty. That's a big statement there, PK. I appreciate it, man. You always make me feel good. Hey, this is this is the best time that we have, and normally we get to talk about positive things, and uh, well, we'll do that eventually today. What happened last night, Joey? We're going to keep it positive. We're going to keep it positive today, so we're not even going to talk about the game last night. We're just going to do the old, you know, you know, you know it's funny, BK, when I was cleaning uh, my house when I was a kid, <laughs> this, is, this, is a true, this is a true story, and I guarantee you someone out there has done this, maybe not as an adult, but as a kid. So my, my job, you know, I have a big family, one of six. My mom, dad, the house is always a disaster. We always had to clean the house up. My mom would come, oh, my God, look at the house. Dad's like, you're living in a barn. Like, we're living in a, the best best Western or something. You know, this isn't, this isn't a, a farm where we clean up after you clean up. So they would always get on us. So I would always have the job to clean the floor. And I remember sweeping the floor. We had a big kitchen. Like I said, family of eight. We had a pretty, pretty good-sized kitchen because that's kind of where we always were. I always sleep, sweep in the kitchen when I was like six to like ten. I don't know why I did this, but I always would soup into a big pile, and I was too lazy to get a get a, a one of those dust pans kind of thing to sweep it up. So I could never find it because again, things were always lost in our house, family of eight. So instead of finding like an envelope or something to kind of clean up the dust with the broom, I swear to you, I would lift up the floor vent. And I would just sweep oh, everything no. into the air vent. Swear to God, this is a true story. And I, I kid you not, 
I have memories of sitting down at the table, the air coming on, and all of a sudden, <laughs> like dust, and, like Legos would shoot out of the bed. <laughs> so my point is, let's just do that to the game last night. Just sweep it into the air vents and hope it just blows up in your face the next time you're not paying say, attention. I think the problem with doing it that way, Joey, is like it comes back to hit you in the face. <laughs> or it gets but into your today. lungs. But not today, maybe tomorrow. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, Joe, let me, let me spin this in a positive direction then for you. We've talked a lot about the coaching staff and Craig Berube and his skill set with this team. Steve Ott being the great communicator that he is. Jim Montgomery, Mike Van Rhyme. How do you think they have to try and spin this message for these guys? If you're Craig Berube, because you've said everything that needs to be said, is there anything else he can say? Or is there anything else Steve Ott can say to these guys? You know, to me, to me, BK and Alex, uh, how do you motivate this team? And, and, and I, I shouldn't use the word motivate because these are adults. I don't think they need any motivation. These are professional athletes, of course. And any, any uh, hoorah and, and screaming and, and shouting, to me, it was, it's never worked at this level. Because, again, you're, you're dealing with adults. Like, you can get away with motivating kids. You can get, a day with, uh, get away excuse me, with motivating college athletes. But, but there comes a level when you, when you reach that level. Uh, of your professionalism in the National Hockey League. I mean, you're looking around, you have, you have 34-year-old men that have three or four kids. I mean, these, these are adults here, and they do not need to have any kind of motivation. If, if they need to be motivated, they'll never be in that league. So, you know, the coaches obviously have to be very careful about how they approach this thing. Uh, Craig Berube, although I think he would love to rip somebody's head off and love to go after somebody, he knows that's not the proper way. He's, he's been in this league a long time. He's a seasoned coach. He remembers what it's like to be a player. So he remembers what it's like to coach a player. So I think that's really important to, to, to understand. You know, what needs to be done? To me, I think it really just comes down to the communication that, guys, it's been a long year. It's been a crazy roller coaster dating back to a year from basically today, a little over a year. This is what we're looking at. We're about two points out of a playoff spot right now. We have a hell of a month of April hockey coming up. We are playing almost every other day, and we're going up against Colorado, we're going up against the Vegas Golden Knights and, then of course, the Minnesota Wild. Three teams that are playing some terrific, terrific hockey. The majority of your final 30 against those type of teams. Right now, this is the situation. We're on the road. It's been miserable. We sat in L.A. in the rain. It looked just like it looked here in St. Louis. Rainy, no sun for three straight days in the hotel, all cooped up, can't do anything. This is the last push of a road trip. This is it. You have a 12-day road trip. You're already four days into it right now. I know it's exhausting. I know you're tired. I know everyone is mentally, psychologically just worn and torn. Let's get through this road trip. Can we find it in ourselves to go to San Jose in a back-to-back? Two games we should win. We should get four points out of this weekend. Let's take it one step at a time, and let's start scratching and clawing at this road trip. Focus on this road trip starting with this weekend, one game at a time. But if you do that, to me, that will give you the energy to get through this road trip. And then after that, guys, we have a lot of home games. A lot of these players are going to be back at home. Now, I know it hasn't been that favorable from a record standpoint at home, but these players are going to start feeling better. They're going to start doing good. I mean, look at that Vegas series. You come on from, and come back from an 11-game road trip. You're home for three days. Kiss your wife and your kids hello really quickly, and then boom, you're right back for another 12-day road trip. To me, that doesn't really count. I think some sustained home pressure would be really, really nice for the St. Louis Blues. So to me, it's all about getting through this road trip and getting to your players, getting their minds just ready for this next three to four games on the road before you come back to the Enterprise Center and hopefully do some business here. 
Joey Vitale joining us here on 101 ESPN. Joey, the other thing is it they're finally starting to get healthy. You saw Tyler Bozak back out on the ice last night, and I know that game didn't go the way that they wanted it to, but, man, it was great to see him, and he, he looked pretty solid overall. It sounds like Jaden Schwartz likely going to be back in the lineup on Friday at some point here in the not-too-distant future. It sounds like Robert Thomas is getting closer how much of a spark do you think that can give this team as well? Just finally seeing the guys on the ice that they thought were going to be there all season. I think it's going to be a big push and, and not only for what's going to happen on the ice. I think that's, I mean, that's just a given, right? Robert Thomas and what he's going to do in the middle of the ice, as far as moving his feet and his creativity, Jaden Schwartz. Uh, I've said this since the beginning of when I started broadcasting a few years ago, after watching a lot of hockey playing against Jaden Schwartz and this blues team, there is not a player on that team, including Ryan O'Reilly and Jordan Bennington. There's not a player on that team to me that could have more of an impact individually who could individually turn a game like Jaden Schwartz can. I mean, look what happened in 2019, that playoff run. He had a bit of a slow year in far as point wise, just was just snake bitten, kept hitting posts, kept shooting wide, just terrible luck. He gets to the playoffs and he explodes. And of course the blues win the Stanley cup to me, this is a player that individually more than any other player on the team can really turn a game on, on his head. And I think that that's, what's going to be a huge advantage here for Jaden Schwartz, but to put all that side, put all that on ice stuff aside, it's the personalities, guys. It's the personalities. Listen, Dakota Joshua, Mackenzie McEachern, they've been great additions. But listen, they're kind of quieter, younger players. They're kind of milling around the locker room. When you have a player like Jaden Schwartz show back up, the personality larger than life, you know, he's so funny. He's into the tunes. He's, he's, he's uh, nipping at Bortuzzo about the DJ music and what we're going to be playing. He walks into the building. Everyone just gets a, a, a revamp of energy. So from a personality standpoint, from the energy standpoint, the locker room, practice days, picking up the pace, picking up the speed and drills. This is where you really miss those kind of guys like Jaden Schwartz. And it's going to be a huge advantage to have him back. Hopefully, like, like I said, we said, we're thinking Friday, which is tomorrow. So hopefully he'll be back to the San Jose series. Hey, Joe, is there anything specific in terms of in the locker room that can be said to get guys fired up in the first period? Because that seems to be the area that has plagued this team the most. Like you mentioned a little bit ago, how there's really nothing else you can do to motivate these guys but what has to happen to come out of those gates swinging rather than the slow starts we've seen? I think you have to micromanage the game and like break the game down. So instead of looking at, let's, let's just take tomorrow's night's game in San Jose, for example, instead of looking at the game, um, like a 60 minute game and how do we get through 60 minutes? How do we put three periods together? Uh, I know it's cliche, but it, it really, if you break it down, the best coaches and the best teams and the best players and best leaders have always kind of broken it down to me in those first 10, 10 minute segments. When I was in Pittsburgh, uh, Dan Bilesma had a thing where we're just focused on the first 10 minutes. Let's get to that second TV timeout. And then there, he always kind of brought us in to reevaluate where we were. So it's simply that just give yourself a fighting chance in the first 10 minutes. And what the blues have done a little bit bad lately as they haven't really allowed themselves to have a first good 10 minutes of a game. I mean, Billy Huso, his record as far as our, our, the stat rather of letting goals in on that first shot, it's kind of mind numbing. I mean, Jordan Bennington left up one last night and then two, and then it's not all, all in the goaltenders, right? I mean, it's on this team in front of them because they were a little bit lax in front of Jordan Bennington and Billy Huso throughout those stretches. But throughout the first 10 minutes of the game, you're kind of looking up at the scoreboard for better or worse over the last stretch of 20 games. You look it up there, and we're, and we're having to chase. You're having to chase the game, and that's exhausting. You have to put out your, your top three lines. You can't really go down to that fourth line. Why? Because you need a goal. So to me, if you want to run four lines and you want to be that kind of wave after wave, uh, snarly hockey that Craig Ruby's trying to get after, 
you can only really do it whether you're tied or when you have the lead. So instead of looking at this thing like 60 minutes or possibly overtime heading into the game, guys, let's get together here. Let's focus on those first 10 minutes. Let's get to that second TV timeout, and let's reevaluate where we're at. But let's give ourselves a chance. Go out there and play with on your toes. Play with the jump. Play with the jam. Get grizzly. Get snarly. Get in front of the net. Bump a body. Maybe get in a fight. Who knows? You know, drive the goaltender. If it's Devin Dubnik tomorrow night, spear him to the back of the net. If he covers that puck, bam. Get in there and kind of create a little bit of chaos. Just kind of give yourself a little bit of chance. And you look up at 10 minutes, and maybe you're tied. Maybe you got the lead, and then you have something to work with. But, you know, I think a lot of times they can look at these games as a whole, and it can be very overwhelming, especially in a season like this. Joey, final question that I've got for you. We got a text, uh, the Air Comfort Service text line is 65780 from the 314. Hey, guys, you got to ask Joey Vitale about the jelly shot out of <laughs> Kerber's belly button. <laughs> Um, what was that about? Well, I, I don't remember that. I guess don't I, deny it, I Joe Vitale. Ask about is it a jelly shot or a jello shot? Those are two very listen, different things. Listen, sometimes I say things I don't remember, and I kind of black out. Listen, I black out. I black out during the game. What, what, what do you want me to say? Uh, a, lot, a lot of things are coming at me quickly. Uh, but no, last night I was excited about Tyler Bozak in the lineup. Last night, the Blues desperately needed a win. We were excited. We had the Irish cried, uh, crowd behind us at OB Clark's. Curbs offered to buy a bucket of beers for any table after the time, every time the Blues scored. And I just kind of, I felt the moment. Listen, when I was in Boston, uh, we have lines down the street at Connor Larkin's and all the Irish pubs. I mean, it's 7 a.m. And then the, the waiters and the owners and the managers would come out on the streets, usually a freezing Boston morning, and he, they would have a tray of these green jello shots. So I have great memories of jello shots. So, you know what? Anything for a Blues win. That's the point of this whole story, guys. That's what I'm trying to get after. I- I'm a team guy. And if I got to take a jello shop off of uh, Curbs' belly button to do that, to get a W, see, I- I'm a team first guy. It's all about those guys. You need those character guys in the locker room. I'm just trying to do my part. You had fond memories, though, of jello shots. Why are you trying to ruin them like Why this? Did you want to vomit <laughs> after a jello shot. Hey, you've never seen Curbs' belly button. You never know. Well, I've seen his face, and I can only imagine what the belly button looks like. Oh, boy. I want to be very Uh, clear. That was Alex Ferrario. (laughs) Can you you clip that? I'm going to need to save that. And, Alex, if you ever turn on me one of these days, I need that in my my arsenal. Joe. Joe, you know better than you and I ever turning on each other. This is a team. This is a team thing. You and I. I know. I'm with you. No, hey, that was a great. Great event last night at Obi Clark's. Uh, thanks to Jimmy and Joe out there. They did a fantastic job. The waitresses, great crowd of people, is responsible, 50%, uh, kept the capacity, which is probably hard for those people. But walking around, and I think I said it to Ashley in the PNC pregame report, you never know who you're going to run to at Obi Clark's. I'm walking by, and this old lady kind of gives me a tap on the shoulder and says, hey, Joey, from the radio? I go, yeah, I'm Joey Radio. What's going on? How can I help you? And she goes, I used to wipe your butt when you were a baby. <laughs> she used to babysit me. She used to babysit me, no. and she used to change my diaper. Swear to God. Her name Nothing. is Leslie. Sweet old lady, and she's got a crush on Darren Pang. I mean, the stuff you learn at Obi Clark's, it's amazing. <laughs> nothing, better than, nothing better than someone walking up to you and saying, I used to wipe your butt when you were a baby. Yeah, I was like, uh, sorry about that. I didn't know what to say. <laughs> I first thought I remember, like, she, and then she said, when you were a baby, I was trying to think back in the last five to ten years. I didn't do anything that irresponsible. We need that much help leaving a bar. But, no, it was when I was a baby, so it was all good to go. Joey, we always enjoy it, man. All the best. We'll talk with you again soon, my friend. Hey, I'm, I'm happy that this is the highlight of your guys' week. It's the highlight of my week as well. You guys are doing a fantastic job. Uh, BK and Alex, and we'll talk to you guys next week. You're the best. That's Joey, Joey Vitale here on 101 ESPN. I'm the best. Joey! So, Joey mentioned jello shots. Jello shots are the best until they're the worst. 
And what I mean by that is... Take it out of Curbs' belly button. You'll get there quick. That's a good point. Maybe they're they, they're just immediately the worst in that scenario. <laughs> like, if you go on a float trip, jello shots at the beginning is like, jello shot, jello shot. You get to the end, you're like, oh, God, another jello shot. <laughs> it can make for a long float, man. It sounds like my 30th birthday where I was just chanting dirty 30s nonstop and just chugging whiskey, and now the thought of whiskey just makes... Ugh. Every time. How old are you? 30. So this I was just, like a month ago? This was August. This was August. This was you August. I don't know if I... It was like a decade ago, man. No, I remember when no. I turned 30 three I, months I still, ago. That's because I still haven't recovered from that night. And now I'm like a dad. So now I can never have those nights again. So game over. He's Alex Ferrario. That's Sienna Hendricks. And I'm Brandon Kylie. We'll dive into the junk drawer coming up next. This is the BK and Ferrario podcast. Now here's BK and Ferrario. Let's open it up. The Junk Drawer with BK and Ferrario. With Alex Ferrario, Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. Let's dive into the Junk Drawer here on 101 ESPN. Alex, what do you have for us today, my man? Boys, bet it or forget it, the WAP performance at the Grammys had more FCC complaints than Janet Jackson's wardrobe malfunction, which was 540,000 complaints. Oh, I'll bet that. There's no way it didn't, right? Forget it. Janet Jackson literally showed a nipple live on television. (laughs) Yep, those are the days when you just saw a nipple on television on free cable. By the way, you are... Correct, BK, Tanner, terrible take once again. Forget it, because as of now, according to this article, only 80 or so reviews have really? come in about the WAP performance for the FCC. So a uh, a Dallas radio show acquired these FCC complaints, and some of these are phenomenal, boys. So first one, let's take you out to a woman who was in Idaho who said that Megan the Stallion was barely dressed in a thong with naked look-alike legs. What? What are look-alike legs? Well, that's what I'm saying. Ma'am, I hate to break it to you, but those were actually her legs that were shown on television. <laughs> naked look-alike legs. Yes. Okay. And if it if it means anything to you, she was 74 years old who made that complaint out in Idaho. Yeah, that another I, one. Actually, Idaho makes more sense than the age. I would have assumed yes. like 85 in Idaho. Idaho. <laughs> I'm surprised anybody's awake that late in Idaho watching it at 74. Next one, New Jersey complained, saying, "Why was that performance okay, but Pepe Le Pew is offensive?" Yeah, I saw that one coming. And then this one was fantastic. From Texas, a 73-year-old male, what the blank did I just watch? I feel like I'm at a strip club on Sunday afternoon. That is so specific in, like, saying I'm at a strip club at Sunday afternoon, but then I want to ask. Do people go to a strip club on Sunday afternoons often? And what are the strip clubs like in in Texas on Sunday afternoons? James Harden can tell you about it. Oh, James Harden can tell you about it on Tuesday afternoons. He's a pro. Yeah, he's a what literal saying, Hall of Famer at what I'm one saying of the nightclubs and strip clubs in uh, I, Houston. I, I've never experienced this. I've only heard from friends, guys. But from what I understand, strip clubs in the daytime are not that good. Oh, no. I've heard great things about the brunch on Sunday mornings. 
Well, this uh, 74-year-old... That was from what? Delayed reaction from Steak friends. and eggs. I've heard great things about the steak and eggs from friends at, at the strip clubs on a Sunday morning. Well, I heard they only served meat and uh, veggies on Sunday's afternoons. Oh, interesting. Uh, I so. looked up, so th- there's a few others that I just found after you, after you mentioned this, Alex. Yeah, please. So somebody from San Antonio, Texas said, and I don't know if this was a threat or a legitimate <laughs> ask by them. It was incredibly erotic, sexual, and perhaps better suited for a later time slot. Please consider. So, are, are you, Please consider. Are you suggesting that it needed to be later so that way you could have been in a better situation as it is, quote, inc- incredibly erotic and sexual? Yeah, I feel like that complaint was sent because he was watching it and he's like, can this be on later at night, please? Yeah. Why did this have to be at eight? Yeah. Little Sally is not in bed yet. My wife goes to bed every night at 1027 p.m. Why couldn't you have showed it at 1030? Another one. Uh, this comes from a viewer. Uh, this might even be the same viewer that you were talking about in uh, in Idaho. The outfits they were wearing and the movements they did were absolutely <laughs> disgusting. The network should face very stiff penalties. The outfits they were wearing and the movements that they did were absolutely disgusting. The it's movements Megan's, is what gets me. It's Megan's damn look-alike legs on stage. That's what did it for me. The movements, and by that, is she talking about, or he, I don't know who the, the complainant Sounds was. Sounds like a or, I'm sorry, sounds like a she. Potentially. Uh, yeah. By movements, I'm assuming they were talking about as Megan the Stallion and Cardi B were like, you know, putting their legs together in a yes. thrusting motion and then turning over and doing it once again in the other direction. Yes, that, the, the gyrating from their hips movement on stage was not like Elvis Presley back in the day in their opinion. You would almost say that it looked as if their legs were coming together in a scissor-like motion. That, yes, that would be the way that I would describe that. Some would say it looked like a pair of scissors cutting a piece of paper. Yeah, I would say that that would probably be the yes. best way to describe that particular movement that was taking place on stage. That's from a great way to look at Six five seven eight zero is the Air Comfort Service tax line from the six three six. Obviously, guys, you've never been to the Spearmint Rhino in Las Vegas. Um, so I have been once. I have as well, unfortunately. Um, or fortunately. One bit of advice to anybody that is going to the Spearmint Rhino in the future. If you go back to the back, oh, understand that it is more expensive than you are initially expecting. How, how much more expensive, BK? Drinks cost like 15 bucks when you walk through the door. It better be like Goldschlager. They're like $60 when you go to the back. Nice. For but, each what one. Comes wi- but what comes with the $60 drink? A dance. So you get one for you, one for her. That is required. That is a part of the uh, dance. And then you're also paying for the dance on top of that. Do not expect to go there for less than $500. <laughs> just just don't expect to do that. I got things to pay for for more than $500. Yeah. I got a diapers to pay for. <laughs> Although it like, sounds like Stimmy's so- coming through the mail. I got to get yeah. that thing here quick. We got, Although- we got diapers to buy, ladies and gentlemen. Sounds like some of the people that were making those FCC complaints need to buy diapers, too.
With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendricks, and I'm Brandon Kylie. I think they were using them for very different reasons. <laughs> Coming up next, what would a successful season look like for Alex Reyes? I think I'm going to have a different take on this than the manager will. We'll tell you about it coming up on 101 ESPN. This is the BK and Ferrario podcast. Now here's BK and Ferrario. You know, I have no issue with um, Alex throwing it uh, the night. Um, you know, I think the bullpen can have a lot of different looks to it. We like the rolls to it. Um, but I don't know that we're going to establish the closer at the moment. Love a guy come in and throw 12 pitches with that kind of stuff. Absolutely. Um, you know, Jordan's got that kind of stuff. Cabrera was really good today. You know, we got Helsley's that kind of stuff. Geo's got a, a lot of different weapons in his arsenal. So, but yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, here's a guy that clearly has the stuff and the um, fortitude to do it. Well, that's cute. Oh, boy. <laughs> Here we go. That was Mike Schiltz the other day talking about Alex Reyes and potentially using him as the closer for the Cardinals. I hear that, and then I read this from Ben Fredrickson. He wrote over in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, quote, If I had to guess today, I would guess that Alex Reyes pitches well in short burst, high leverage use this season, usually in the eighth or ninth innings. And around this time next year, the Cardinals are saying once again, he didn't get enough innings to be a starter in 2022, end quote. Again, that comes from Ben Fredrickson over on the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. Go check out his chat from yesterday. That's where I found that. All right, Alex. Time to have a serious conversation about Alex Reyes. Okay. Because I came into the offseason basically saying, hey, you should start him out in the bullpen. I do not want to see him as a starter yet. I want to see that in 2022. Ease him into the season, make sure he's able to stay healthy, get him close to that 100-inning mark, and then next year is the year that you throw him into the rotation. I still believe that that should be the case. However, I also understand that a manager's main priority is winning that day's game. They worry about that day, and then they'll figure out tomorrow later. And Alex Reyes, pitching the way that he has been thus far in spring training, is going to make it really, really really compelling to use him as your closer. So when I hear Mike Schiltz after a game, when Alex Reyes once again, looked awesome, which he has all spring training say, yeah, you know, he's a guy that could maybe be a closer for us. I get legitimately concerned that that's going to be the role that they use him in. Yeah, I understand that, but I also, I also kind of agree with the premise of, we have to win every game right now. And I think they have the roster to do this. And Alex Reyes gives them the best chance to win baseball games. Now, this season, it sucks because it makes a lot of sense to have him in the rotation. But let's look at this next year in terms of the rotation. We know Flaherty's a part of it. Dakota Hudson's coming back. You'll have Miles Michaelis. So then from there, you have two other spots. The hope is Matthew Levator is a part of that rotation next season. And then you kind of have depth with a bunch of guys that maybe Alex Reyes isn't in that consideration anymore. Maybe you use that money to go find yourself another rotation pitcher. Let me ask you guys this. If Alex Reyes is not a, a starter for this team, but if he has a career like Andrew Miller, would you be okay with that? No, that's a failure. Really? Given what he is, given how filthy he is, if they do not give him an opportunity to be a starter, whether it be next year or the year after, and I honestly think the answer is next year, if they don't give him that chance 
to see if he can do it, then this season has been a failure in my mind but for what him, he, for his role specifically. But what if he realistically can't be a starter? Then I want to like, find out. I want to find out because he failed. I don't want to find out because they continue pushing it off and continue telling me we don't think he can do it. No, let's find out if he can do it. If he can't, then okay, we can readjust the plan accordingly, and that sucks. I It's going to be unfortunate if that happens, but then you make the adjustment and he becomes a reliever because relievers are by nature, they break more often, and they are less valuable. There's but a reason why the highest-end starting pitchers get paid a heck of a lot more than even the highest-end relievers. It's because they're just not as trustworthy on one side than the other. You get more value out of a starter like Reyes, who could legitimately, at his peak man, this could be a guy that throws 180 innings and has a potentially a sub three ERA with a strikeout rate that is up there with the best in baseball. That's what but his I, peak looks like. I don't know if he if I don't know if he can get there. I think the Cardinals might already know that he is not a starter. I mean, BK, look, how the can last you time, know that though if you don't give him a shot? He can't stay because, healthy. Well, you yeah, I mean, you've started more than ten games. The last time you've done that was 2016, and that was in AAA. You've never started more than 10 games on the major league level, and every time that you've tried, he had, what, a one start for the major league in 2018 because he was out in 2017. He had one start in 2019, and he had, what, it was one start in 2020. He realistically hasn't been able to stay healthy enough for you to be a starter, and so the reason I bring up Andrew Miller's name is maybe they're looking at this and saying, we'd love for him to be a starter. We don't think he can get there, but we do think that he can be the most dominant pitcher out of the bullpen in Major League Baseball. And maybe he helps us win a World Series or get close to a World Series that way. Yeah, I, I think if he becomes an Andrew Miller, it's not a failure. But I agree with your take, BK, of I want to see him fail before I decide to push him to that role. And I think this is the last year in which you have to figure out what he is. Because... Well, the other day you said he's got what I think two or three years after this. I mean, two there's more. there's not a lot of a lot of time left to figure out what you're going to do with Reyes. So this season, it's either we are building him up to be the starter or he's in the bullpen. And right now, it sounds like they are going to push him to be a bullpen piece. I, I disagree with it. You know, my t- I would rather see him in the rotation now. I, I I'm tired of the training wheels. You go out there and pitch. And I understand he hasn't started more than ten games since 2016, but. At some point, you've got to take the training wheels off, and the Cardinals just seem too hesitant to do it. So the other thing that we have to keep in mind is some of this stuff is just freak injuries. Like it, It's not all his arm blew out, his shoulder blew out, although that is part of it, but he, he had, if I'm not mistaken, didn't he have the suspension at one point for 50 games? Yeah, back in 2015, 2016, there was a suspension. He broke his hand at one point because he punched a wall. And then the arm started breaking down, and that is a big part of this story, Alex, to your point. Um, and you've got to keep that in the back of your mind. But I want to know if he can do it because now he's changed his mechanics. You can watch him now in these spring training games. He doesn't even look like the same guy that he was last year, much less the guy that he was five years ago when a lot of these arm issues started. His body has completely changed. Remember when he came up? I remember we talked with a a former scout at the time. I was with Kevin Wheeler then, and he said he's like a – He's a bull of pasta away from being like 220, 230, right? He he was a big dude when he first came up. He doesn't look that way anymore. Now he looks built. Alex Reyes looks like he is ready to go. Um, And so I want to find out this year if he can get up to that 100-inning mark or so. And then next year I want to see him start. And so the reason why I brought this up today is because 
if the plan is to use him as a closer and to use him exclusively as a reliever this year, and then that forces you, as Ben Fred said, to use him out of the bullpen again next year, you have one year left at that point on his deal. You're not going to see what he's like as a starter in St. Louis. You're just going to continue pushing this thing down, pushing this thing down, and you're going to do it so long that eventually what you're saving him for is to start for somebody else. And that can't happen. That cannot be the plan here in St. Louis. I understand that he can be dynamite out of the pen. And if that is the worst case scenario for Alex Reyes, I'm here for it. I would sign up. But I want to know first that he himself failed as a starter now at this point in his career when he's 26 years old, not when he was 21 as a prospect that was still trying to find his sea legs in the MLB. But if he fails as a starter, then you've just lost an asset not only for a possible starter but also in your bullpen. And I think that's the crucial part for me and why I'm starting to see the other side of this because he is a history of breaking down. And I get it, suspension, punching walls, but he's been unable to stay healthy. That is my overall assessment of this, regardless if it's an injury or not. If he breaks down as a starter, then I don't have him at all. But if if I have him as my bullpen guy and I can use him, and maybe he's not close to it, maybe it is going to take two years, but at least I have Alex Reyes, and I am a much better team with him on this roster rather than him being injured. But if you're going to keep preaching that you have these bullpen arms, and that's what we've heard from the Cardinals, is we have arms, we have depth, then I think you should be more willing to risk putting him in the rotation. Live up to live up to what you're telling us. You're telling us you have enough arms and you're going to ride this Memphis train with all these guys that we're going to have in our pen. I, I, I just feel like the Cardinals, it just seems like such mixed messaging of, look, we believe Reyes can be a starter, and then we're being told we don't have a problem with him being the closer. Like, they have to figure. They have to say something soon, and it's going to be fascinating to see because I, I said this. I think earlier in the week, by July, we're going to know if he's a bullpen piece next year. Or he's a starter. Yep. I mean, it's going to be decided by July. If he is at like forty innings by July, you're not going to see him as a starter. Or thirty innings by July, you're not going to see him as a starter next year. By the way, six five seven eight zero is the Air Comfort Service text line. Somebody else mentioned, hey, if he has the Josh Hader role for the Cardinals, that could potentially work for him being in the rotation next year because he throws a lot of innings. Josh Hader, first of all, has broken down recently because of all of those innings. And that's one of my concerns is, okay, if you have him throwing 80 plus innings out of the bullpen, is that even worse for his arm than throwing 120 to 130 as a starter for you this year? Because I think the answer might be yes. Yeah, he's coming in so frequently. So Josh Hader threw 80 innings in 2018. He threw 75 in 2019. And then last year, was held to just 19 innings in a more traditional role in this shortened season. That's my fear for Alex Reyes, is that he breaks down. You you end up trying to save him from himself, and by doing so, you break him down even more in this role that you're giving him. I hope they don't do it. But if I had to guess today, if I were to place a bet on something, my bet would be it's, it's too tempting. And Mike Schilt looks at his bullpen and he says, my best guy is Alex Reyes. I'm going to close games with him. I think that's the way that this thing goes, even though it breaks my heart for Alex Reyes and it makes me frustrated as a fan of the team that this is the route that is probably going to go. I think he's going to be the next Trevor Rosenthal. Remember how often we talked about it? Maybe this is the year he's going to get they're going to stretch him out. Maybe he's going to start for him this year and it never happened. And it was because of injuries and it was because there were other guys that ended up stepping up there. This very well may be the same case here with, with Alex Reyes once again. With Alex Ferrario and Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line. Let's play a game of Bet It or Forget It coming up next. 
This is the BK and Ferrario podcast. Now here's BK and Ferrario. Neil Greenberg of the Washington Post going to join us coming up here in just about 10 minutes or so. He'll give us tips and tricks for an NCAA tournament bracket. Hopefully we can help you win some money as the tournament officially begins later on today. But right now, 65780 is the Air Comfort Service text line for bet it or forget it. Let's start with a question that we talked a little bit about earlier today. Bet it or forget it, guys. Lane Thomas finishes this season with more at-bats than Harrison Bader. I'm going to bet it. I think we are going to get to a point where if you hit, you get to play. And I do think Lane Thomas is going to be an effective piece for this team. And I think he's going to get more at-bats this season than out, than Harrison Bader. I, the only thing that concerns me is the drop-off for Lane Thomas. And, and if he can stay, I think he could he could yeah, be effective. So I'll say bet it. I'm going to say forget it. I still think Harrison Bader will get more at-bats than Lane Thomas. Lane Thomas, sure, his bat could put him into the lineup. But I think, again... Bader's so good defensively, I don't want to pull him out. And I get it, Thomas isn't bad defensively, but I don't want to pull Harrison Bader from my starting lineup. Now, if this was Tyler O'Neill, then I might be willing to bet it. But it's not. It's Bader. Forget it. I'm going with, I'm forgetting it as well. Uh, I'm with Tanner. I think Harrison Bader finishes the year with the most at-bats out of those two, just because I think Tyler O'Neill has won the left field job, and it's going to take a lot for Lane Thomas to steal that away from him. And in center, I just think this team trusts Harrison Bader for better or worse. And you guys know, I think it's for better, but I think there are a lot of fans that would say it's for worse. I think they trust him. And so I think they're going to stick with him a little bit longer than some fans would have fun being wrong guys. Six, five, seven, eight. Oh, is the air comfort service text line for bet it or forget it. All right. Let's talk about the big news yesterday because this kind of went under the radar. Given all of the free agency news, Adam Schefter gave a little bit of a Shefty bomb on ESPN. I don't think I'm ready to say Russell Wilson is a Seahawk, will be a Seahawk. I just know how this league operates. And again, I think that maybe they're inclined today, they are inclined today not to move on from him. But I want to see the draft come and go before I'm ready to say that Russell Wilson will be a Seahawk this year. That's really interesting to me. I listened to another podcast um, and they had Diana Rossini on, who's an ESPN insider as well. She said that... The Seahawks had a real discussion about whether or not they should accept the Bears offer. If you're completely uninterested in trading Russell Wilson, you nip that thing in the bud immediately. They didn't do that. They had conversations about whether or not this was the right move. But the reason why they shot it down, according to Diana Rossini, is because the Seahawks felt that they needed a replacement for Russell Wilson. They can't they can't just get draft picks and the Bears didn't have a quarterback to offer them. Better to forget it, Alex. Russell Wilson starts the season with a team other than the Seahawks. I'm going to forget it. Just because I don't know what that what that team or who that team is that's going to give up a strong replacement for Russell Wilson. Because if you look at the top picks that could get one of those guys, I don't see the Jaguars doing that over Trevor Lawrence. I don't know if the Jets are going to do that. Jets seem like they're making the push for Deshaun Watson more than anything. I think he's on this team, especially if it's true what the report was, that it was three first-round picks from the Chicago Bears along with a couple of position players. If they didn't pull the trigger on that, I'm not sure you're going to get a better deal for Russell Wilson if you're Seattle, so I'm going to forget it. 
I'm with you. I'm forgetting it. I'm still sticking with he's going to play in Seattle this year. I still think he's going to play in Seattle throughout whatever his contract is, so I'll forget it. Do it, BK. I'm forgetting it for this year. I don't think he finishes his career with Seattle. I, I think too much damage has been done. Imagine if, Alex, we we left the show today and we see reports. Actually, you know what? We're, we're not established enough. This, this doesn't work for us. Um, no. I, I don't want to put somebody else in this, though. Uh, imagine if I left the show today and there were reports that came out in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch that uh, management here is looking to ship me off and they want to replace me with somebody else. And then they decided, ah, nah, nah, this isn't the right time for that. Well, I'm, I now know you're looking to move on from me, right? Like, there's no stability here for me whatsoever. I guess I got to go back to school to become a teacher or something. Because uh. <laughs> it means that they're not looking at me as a long-term answer. I think that's how Russell Wilson feels right now. He's got to be hearing this kind of news and is thinking to himself, man, they don't want me. They don't want me. And why don't they want me, right? It's the Will Smith moment with his uh. Uh, with his Uncle Phil. Why didn't he want me, man? That's how Russell Wilson feels right now about Pete Carroll. He's done everything you could ask for. Why don't you want me here? So I think Russ gets traded. I don't know that it'll happen this year. I'm kind of hedging my bets here, but I I think he's gone by the draft next year. Well, you're taking the old Ferrario method and finding that loophole, BK. That's right. Uh, 65780 is the air comfort service tax line for bet it or forget it. Uh, last one for you guys. Bet it or forget it. Deshaun Watson still ends up traded before the NFL draft. Boy, this is an interesting one, especially with all of these rumors mm. going on about this lawsuit that he's dealing with. Um, you wonder if teams stay aggressive or kind of take a step back until it plays itself out. I'm going to bet it, though. I, I do still think Deshaun Watson is gone because one of the way that their head coach talked in the press conference a couple of days ago or last week, if I'm not mistaken. And then on top of it, you got a Deshaun Watson who really just does not want to be there. So I'm going to bet it. I think he's gone still this season, but this is going to be interesting with all of these lawsuit news. I'm going to forget it. I, I think he's going to remain a Houston Texan. I I understand the lawsuit, but I don't even, I hate to say this, but the NFL, I don't think that plays into it. I, I don't because we've seen guys with worse pat. Again, I don't like to say this. It shouldn't be the I case. I mean, Antonio Brown was just exactly. He was on the Super Bowl champion, Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Exactly. So I, I don't think it plays into the trade discussions. I think Houston is just going to hold on to him and say, look, you're going to retire, retire. We've got you under contract. You're going to come and play for Houston or you're not going to play at all. We don't care either way. I, it may happen in another year or two this year. I don't think so. I'll forget it. I think he's going to get traded. I think we're going to see it. Um, and I am a little more hesitant than Tanner, though, about this stuff that's coming out. I None of us know what this is going to lead to, and I would never suggest that we do. And I don't even want to comment on it because of uh, the possibility that it is something more than what we're expecting right now. But with that in the backdrop, I do think it's a little tougher now for other teams to navigate this without knowing what the future holds there. You can't sell your franchise, basically mortgage the franchise for a guy that you think is going to be the future if any of this is real if that ends up sticking and these allegations are true he he's in some big 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 trouble um but if they're not if that stuff goes away and it is proven to be false in the next month or so i think he's traded I think that the Panthers and the 49ers are both suited very well right now to be in a position to potentially trade for him. You've also got the Jets and Dolphins that can offer the most. Man, I was thinking about this the other day. 
I wonder with Nick Casario, the former executive from New England, I wonder if he would be interested in Jimmy Garoppolo. I wonder if that's a piece that could get this deal done a little easier than we expected to with the San Francisco 49ers. Keep an eye on that. It always depends on uh, how much a team chaplain loves a player. That's right. Team chaplain. Go out there and get them. With Alex Ferrario, Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kiley. Coming up next, Neil Greenberg has written a ton about the tournament for the Washington Post. He put up all of his uh, tips and tricks, basically his beginner's guide to this year's tournament. I want to ask him who we can trust, who should we absolutely eliminate from our pool of contenders to win this thing. We'll talk about it with Neil Greenberg coming up next on 101 ESPN. This is the BK and Ferrario podcast. Now here's BK and Ferrario. Neil Greenberg, for my money, one of the best writers in the country, especially when it comes to breaking down big things like March Madness. But first, there's this news from Adam Schefter that is just baffling to me. According to him, the Cardinal, former Cardinals running back Kenyon Drake just signed a two-year deal worth $11 million guaranteed with the Oakland Raiders. It includes incentives that could get it up to $14.5 million. Alex, the Raiders have had the single most puzzling offseason of any team in the league. They've now completely dismantled their offensive line. They just added a running back for $11 million guaranteed. If he gets up to that $14 million, he would be the highest or the eighth highest paid running back in the league. And this is a team that has Josh Jacobs as well. Bold prediction real quick. I, if you could place money down on who would get the number one overall pick next year in the draft, uh, put some money down on the Oakland Raiders. I don't know what their odds would be for that, but this team is going to be an absolute disaster in 2021. God, you hate running backs, BK. And thank you, Tanner, because he just did BKO the Raiders, Raiders Super Bowl champion in 2021. Yeah, that's how this is going to go with uh, with absolutely nobody blocking on the offensive line for two highly paid running backs. Yeah, you don't need so anybody. The well. Kansas City Chiefs are proving that. With Alex Ferrario... And Tanner Hendrickson, I'm Brandon Kylie. Right now, let's go out to the Brown and Crouppen celebrity line. Neil Greenberg of the Washington Post is joining us here on the show. Neil, we always appreciate the time, man. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you? Uh, doing all right. So let's talk a little bit about this tournament that officially kind of begins today. What is when, you, when somebody sits down to do their bracket, whether they watched a ton of basketball this year or watched none of it, what's the number one you, tip you could give them to how they should start with this thing? Well, I think you've got to start with the national champion and go backwards. Um, historically, you look at what wins pools, and it's getting the national championship game right, and it's also getting the national champion right. right. Um, you know, a national champion correct pick is worth the same as going perfect in the first round. So you definitely want to make sure that you have at least a title game correct. And then you want to start to differentiate your bracket. You want to think about what are the other brackets going to look like, and how do you make yours different. So... Um, you know, for me, that's starting with Illinois as the champion and then starting everything backwards from there. We like to hear that, Neil. Way to just buy into the audience right now, picking <laughs> Illinois as those national champions. Let me ask you this, Neil, because I've gotten strategies before and they've worked. They've also had me tear up my bracket <laughs> after day number one. Is there yeah. anything into just picking the top teams in every round? Yeah, I mean, you can you can do pretty well in that. And if you're in a big pool and you're just looking to be competitive, that's probably the way to go. You can probably win 70% of games doing it that way, um, which is fine. I mean, if you're just looking to, you know, to, to be able to beat most of your friends or to, to, you know, see your name on a leaderboard in a big pool, then, then that's great. 
Um, but your your bracket's not going to be unique, right? You're going to have Gonzaga in there. You're going to have Baylor in there. You may even have Michigan in there, um, which a lot of brackets are going to have. Um, so, yeah, you may you may get some money, but that's going to be an awfully difficult bracket to have win a big pool. And by big pool, I would say anything north of 50 people in it. Um, for those type of pools, you just have to be different. So, Neil, the number one thing that people like to look at, especially in the first round, I know you said don't worry too much about it, but you know how this goes, right? Everybody wants the upsets, and everybody right. wants to be able to say to all their friends, oh, I picked that one, I got that one right. Which, if you're looking at the seeds, maybe even more so than the teams, where should we be looking for upsets in the first round? I think the 13 seeds are going to be a little more lucrative than the 12 seeds. Um, everyone is kind of conditioned to look at the 5-12 game and pick a 12 seed. Um, I know locally here in D.C., Georgetown is going to be um, you know, very popular, I'm sure. But I'm looking at the 13 seeds. I'm looking at uh, UNC Greensboro. Um, I'm looking at Ohio over Virginia. You know, Virginia has had a tough time lately with their um, coronavirus positive tests. They haven't been able to practice. Um, so I'm looking there as well. And I think, um, you know, North Texas could be an interesting pick, you know, if you're looking to differentiate your bracket a lot. And, um, you know, Liberty over Oklahoma State. I mean, I think that those are – that's going to be the seed line, at least to me, um, that could have a lot more impact than, let's say, the 12th seed. Neil, that's where I was going to go next. Two teams that confuse the hell out of me in this bracket are Virginia and Kansas, mainly because of the COVID deal that they've been they've been struck with. Do you see either of these teams being able to make a run, or do you think both of these teams are looking at potential upsets in the first round? Um, I I I am picking um, Ohio to beat Virginia for sure. Um, again, Virginia. You know, Virginia still has to pass their COVID test, I think, to even gain entry into the tournament. Um, they might have done that. I, I've been a little bit out of loop writing. But, um, so I definitely Ohio, and I think the odds makers agree there. They opened up an 11-point favorite. They were down to as low as 7 points. I'm sorry, Ohio was getting 11 points. They're now getting um, as low as 7 points. Um, that's a major shift. And like you said, the same thing with Kansas. I mean, we don't know how, you know, how it's going to affect these teams on the court. So you're much better off fading them um, because any uncertainty is going to work in your favor. Now, do I think Kansas can beat Eastern Washington? Yeah, absolutely. But again, I mean, if you're looking to, to get an edge on other brackets, that's an interesting pick for you to take. And, you know, you're really only risking, you know, one point depending on what your, your, the rest of that upper region of the bracket looks like. So it's not like a make-or-break type thing. I don't think anyone's going to have Eastern Washington going too deep. But... Um, you know, it certainly makes your bracket unique in that respect, and perhaps it makes an easier path for a team like USC or even the winner of Wichita State and, and Drake to to get that much, um, you know, to to make it into the Sweet 16 just a little bit easier. Neil Greenberg of the Washington Post joining us here on 101 ESPN. Neil, one thing that I've been struggling with all week is what to make of these Big Ten teams because I look over on Ken Palm and it's six of the top 13 teams in the country based on their metrics in the Big Ten. You go even further, it's nine of the top 35. So, for example, a team like Wisconsin, you look at the record and it's like, okay, 17 and 12. I'm not all that impressed by them, but... Then you go down the losses, and 10 of those are in Big Ten play against some of the other best teams in the country. How do you think that's going to play out into this tournament? Should I, should I be leaning towards some of these Big Ten teams that 
might not have the record that people are looking at, but are in terms of the quality of the team, some of the best teams in the country. I am. Um, I am very bullish on the Big Ten teams. I have Illinois, Ohio State, and Iowa in the Final Four. I have Wisconsin playing Ohio State in the Elite Eight. Um, I think that when you look at this year in particular um, and the lack of out-of-conference out play, it's, um, you know, it's very telling that the Big Ten was so strong, right? I mean, they, these teams just beat up on one another. And you look like a team at, like Wisconsin, you know, like you said, I mean, their losses are not um, – they're, they're not cheap losses. I mean, they lost to some, some good teams. So, yeah, I think that um, you do have to take it seriously. And you look at, you know, the Ken Palm rating in particular. You know, Ken Palm, the higher-ranked team on Ken Palm has won um, 70% of games this year. So, you know, that alone tells you if, if you have these teams that are clustered at the top, chances are they're going to be able to beat the teams that are underneath. Um, so, you know, we talked about making your bracket more unique. I have Wisconsin beating Baylor uh, moving on to the Sweet 16. There's going to be a lot of people on Baylor. Um, you know, I have Gonzaga falling to Iowa in the Elite Eight. There's going to be a lot of people on Gonzaga. I think more than a third of brackets in the ESPN pool have Gonzaga as winning it all. So if you get, you know, look, you have to get lucky in these type of things. If if Zaga does lose before that, you know, you just eliminated a third of the field, which uh, is no small thing. So, yeah, I'm completely bullish on the Big Ten teams, and I think that it's warranted how good they've been this year. Pardon me while I go fix my entire bracket now after hearing Neil just say that with those Ken Palm ratings. Uh, I'm curious, Ken, because my guys Brandon Kylie and Tanner Hendrickson just called me dumb a few days ago. But I'm pretty bullish on Georgetown, and I don't know if it's just buying into the fact that Patrick Ewing was fired up about Madison Square Garden or if it was the way that they played in that tournament. Where do you have Georgetown in this tournament? All right. Well, I'm not going to call you stupid. Okay. Right. That's a good but, start. Um, I, there was I, a big bud there, Alex. There was a I mean, big, look, there was a big the pause. Show. You know that. Like, there I'm was a weird, big pause and a show. big bud. I, I don't want to have any sort of technological <laughs> issue where I'm disconnected <laughs> right now. Um, but the one thing that worries me about Georgetown is they turn the ball over on offense a ton. Right? They turn the ball on offense a ton. They don't, they don't get those back on defense. That's a big problem. Um, so I think when you're when you're going up against uh, an efficient offense like Colorado, you know you can't really afford to give up those type of plays. Now they may make up for some of those on the offensive glass. Georgetown's a very good offensive rebounding team, um, so they may get some second chance opportunities there. They're a good three point shooting team, so they can you know they can score in bunches. Um, but those turnovers really do bother me a little bit. Um, I don't. I personally don't have them moving on. I have Colorado be, being them and going pretty deep, like I just said. Um, I know here it, locally, there's going to be a lot of um, a lot of people on Georgetown, but you know, and as a 12 seed, there'll probably be a lot of people on Georgetown. But um, you know, I think that they've looked very impressive. I mean, they got into the big dance by winning the Big East, which is which is no small thing. And if they can, you know, if they can control, if they can take better care of the ball on offense. Um, then yeah, I think there are some ingredients there that can that can help them. Um, you know, they have they're pretty tall. They have um, a lot. They have some experience in on their roster, um, so they do have a height advantage. They do have an experience advantage over most clubs. Um, you know, that could serve them well in the tournament. <laughs> there goes that bracket. <laughs> Damn it. They're really good, Alex, except for the fact that they turn the ball over all the time and they can't shoot two-pointers. So except I, yeah, I mean, everything. I mean, look, other than that, other, you put that aside. Hey, 
and I'll give I think you, they'll be fine. I'll give you props, Neil, because you just did all of that by making me sound at least somewhat intelligent and not calling me stupid. <laughs> so God big, bless you, strong, sir. But they can't shoot from the inside. <laughs> they turn the ball well, over. If you want to take a team that turns the ball over and can't shoot, that's fine. Hey. Like no one, that's not a big deal. You said people need to be risky, Neil, and I'm being right. risky with take that. Take the one. risk. Don't worry about I it. I like it. All right, last question for you, Neil. Speaking of being risky, um, I'm looking right now at some of these eight-nine matchups and who they're going to play in the second round, and it has me petrified <laughs> because I. I love Baylor. I love Illinois. I'm with you on them. I'm picking them to win it all as well. However, as you mentioned, Wisconsin is a lot better than their seeding is going to indicate. Same thing for Loyola Chicago. If you go back to those Ken Palm ratings that you referenced, they're the ninth best team in the country. Wisconsin coming in at 11 in those rankings. How much concern should there be about Baylor and Illinois in particular with those matchups coming up in the second round? There should be some concern. I mean, Loyola... Um, is going to play uh, a Georgia Tech team that's going to have some injury issues. So I think that their uh, their probability of advancing is much greater. And you know, like you just said, I mean, these are these are also good teams. And um, you know, maybe we haven't heard about Loyola Chicago in a while, but um, you know, this is another team that shoots very very well. Um, they're very good around the rim. They. Um, you know they're just able to to they fit this profile of if they get hot next thing you know maybe you're down five points and then you got to claw your way back so um, you know for a team like Illinois maybe it's not that much of a of an issue because Illinois is very very good um, but still that's not you know you'd much rather play the winner of like LSU St Bonaventure no. or um, you know maybe even Oklahoma Missouri no. then Neil then you, you were would, doing so well <laughs> yeah then you then you want to see like yeah, like then you want to see Loyola, but um, yeah, Wisconsin would definitely worry me if they can get past North Carolina. I think that Wisconsin could be dangerous. Um, Loyola less so, but still, yeah. I mean, that's um, you know my bracket in particular is very heavy on Illinois, Iowa, Wisconsin, and Colorado. If one of those teams exits earlier than than normal, you know my bracket's going to have some problems. He's Neil Greenberg. You can check out his work. You should do so, especially if you're filling out a bracket. It's very useful to help you out. It's over on the Washington Post. I think that's where Alex is going right now. Oh, I'm staring at it right now. Neil, appreciate the time, man. All the best to you and the family. Enjoy the tournament this weekend. You too. Good luck. Talk to you soon. Absolutely. That's Neil Greenberg joining us here on 101 ESPN. So it wasn't just me on the uh, Alex, maybe, maybe not so much on the Georgetown train. Damn it. Don't worry, I pulled the bracket up immediately and I'm fixing it on 101ESPN.com because I got to get this done before things kick off tonight. So the one thing that I would say, Alex, is um, if you end up changing all of these things and they end up winning, you're going to be furious at yourself. Absolutely furious that you ended up making all of those changes. You realize that, right? I do, and you know what? Now that I'm thinking about it, because you can do this on 101 ESPN, you can make multiple brackets as we discussed. I thought I could have five brackets and just dominate this time. I'm going to make two of them because I'm not going to edit the one that I have, but I think I might go with my second one now that we've talked with Neil, and I'm going to see which one was better, my gut or Neil talking me down off the ledge. 
I have a feeling it's going to be uh, Neil. It's going to be Neil talking to me. Yeah. Hey, the first round of action on the NCAA tournament is scheduled to kick off tomorrow. Tomorrow? Yeah, tomorrow. Wow, it's crazy. <laughs> 101 ESPN is getting in on the fun. We're going to Ballpark Village, Alex. Yeah, You baby. can join myself and oh, Alex Ferrario tomorrow from 11 you, to 2. The fast lane will be out there from 2 to 6 inside Ballpark Village. Plenty of food, bucket specials, giveaways, and tons of screens to watch all of the action. You can also hear that Saturday and Sunday right here on 101 ESPN. It is all courtesy of Matheny Heating and Cooling and Goodwill. The crossover is coming up next. This is the BK and Ferrario podcast. Now here's BK and Ferrario. Time now for the crossover. Brought to you by Dobbs Tire and Auto Centers. Close to home or close to work. For quality tires and expert auto service, you can always count on Dobbs. Ferrario and Tanner Hendricks and I'm Brandon Kylie. I sign up to play in this year's Bracket Madness pickup. Pick um, I've done that seven times. Wait, we gotta play in them? A pick-um oh, challenge. Brought Get to you by the sports book at Argosy Casino, Alton, and Bud Light. You can fill out your tourney bracket. I know Alex is getting ready to do this once again. He's filled out 12 of them so far. <laughs> it's over at 101ESPN.com. Free to enter. This year's top score is taking home a $250 Fanatics gift card. You know you don't have to worry about Alex for that. So you've got at least one person that you're going to be. What, must be 21 or older. You got to be a resident of Missouri or Illinois. The first round starts tomorrow. So get signed up. Play in the bracket madness now over at 101ESPN.com. And Alex, I know coming up here in just a little while, they can also come talk to you about their bracket at all, out in uh, at Argosy as well. Yeah, and you can lay some bets down on this because I'm headed out to the sports book over at Argosy Casino. I'm going to be there from 4 to 5 o'clock if you want to come out and say hey and also sign up for that Barstool sportsbook app because they got some awesome promos right now including a thousand dollar new player bonus put that thousand dollars on georgetown probably not after you heard me talk with neil a little bit ago but you can get all the details you can check out the sportsbook at argosy casino alton and head on out to uh, alton illinois to argosy and come say hey to me i'll be there from four to five o'clock tonight Road Look, trip. looking forward to that Looking Not forward you, to being out oh. with you tomorrow at Ballpark Village. Can't wait to officially be able to be in the same spot together. For Alex I'm bringing Mario the Capri and Suns. And I'm Brandon fun, Kylie. Guys. We'll be back tomorrow at 11. The Fast Lane's coming up next. Peace. They've got Ray Barilli coming on the show talking about a big milestone for him last night. You've been listening to the BK and Ferrario podcast. Powered by I Promise.